to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, the night featuring Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, we bid you all good evening and or good morning, as the case may be, across all these many, many time zones, stretching from the Hawaiian and Tahitian Islands in the west, eastward across flyover country, that's all of us, to the Caribbean. The exotic U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north well to the pole, and worldwide on the Internet. This is Coast to Coast AM, and I'm Art Bell, and tonight should be very historic indeed. You will hear things you have not heard before. In the first couple of hours of the program from Portland, it's John Kirby. And I'm going to let John tell you all about himself and what he's got for you. Not in terms of stories so much this morning. But in terms of actual audio clips from some of the people uh, whose names, if you don't know now, you certainly will know before the next couple of hours go away. I don't know if we'll call this one Roswell Case Closed or not. <laughs> we'll let you decide for yourself. So all of that uh, coming up in the first couple of hours, then open lines and anything you want to do. Last night certainly was wild enough. Uh, so who knows what's coming up tonight? Okay, so you've got Streamlink for full access to coasttocoastam.com. You've downloaded the Apple iPhone app to take it all with you on the go, and you get the daily Coast Zone email newsletter delivered right to your inbox. But aren't you forgetting something? Yes, you are. It's the one and only After Dark magazine. Coast to Coast AM puts out a monthly four-color magazine that readers have been enjoying for more than 15 years. And each month you can read very personal editorials from me, George Norrie, interviews, which covers areas that you don't hear on the air, articles from guests which are not on the internet and relevant news stories that don't always get covered by the mainstream. Subscribe now and cover all of your Coast to Coast AM media bases. Call our new number at one 261 6392 That's one 261 6392 It's thirty nine ninety five for 12 monthly issues. You can also subscribe online at coasttocoastam.com That's www.coasttocoastam.com now we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Here we go now, up to the Portland area, KEX country, as a matter of fact, and, uh, and John Kirby. John, welcome to the program. Good evening, Art. Good evening. Uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, you have, I know, worked with Kevin Randall um, on several books or are mentioned in a couple of his, Conspiracy of Silence, uh, The Randall Report, and um, uh, and I don't know a lot more about your background, so uh, if you wouldn't mind, give us a sort of a brief sketch of who you are. Sure. Uh, I got a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering from a school in the Northeast. And I'm currently working in high technology as a manager of a local major high-tech firm. And I first got interested in UFOs by doing investigations into abductions back in 1991. But in 1993, I had the good fortune of meeting Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt, who are some of the leading authors in the Roswell case. Mm -hmm. 
And so with Kevin and Don and other people associated with him, for example, Kent Jeffrey, who's uh, uh, been on television recently, Paul David, the executive producer of the Roswell movie. Sure. And even folks like Philip Class, uh, I've had a chance to participate in the investigations and uh, have been down to Roswell several times. Uh, one of the times we were down there was the time when they shot the 48-hour special uh, segment about Roswell. And uh, I've been down to Area 51 a couple of times. I worked on the television crew for the Larry King special from the Larry, from Area 51 about uh, three years ago. So oh, I'll never forget that. That was the one where Larry had a desk out in the middle of the desert there? Art, that was one of the most beautiful shows to work on. What they did was we brought out a satellite truck and a TV production truck and uh, parked it right by the famous Ailey Inn, which is outside the gates of Area 51. Yes. And set up a stage and the cameras, and uh, it was a gorgeous sight because the background was was a desert, and Larry had a desk right there about the five uh, feet above, <laughs> actually three feet above the desert. He looked cold. <laughs> it was it was cold near the end, believe me. And also we had a lot of trouble with moths, and one of the funny stories is that uh, some moths were flying around in the background, and, of course, occasionally <laughs> they get caught in the lights, and people were uh, calling and saying they saw UFOs in the background. <laughs> yes, I know. I remember that. Uh, listen, uh, since you've been so intimately involved in all that has gone on, um, I would like to get your comments uh, before we begin here. On the Air Force's uh, presentation of Roswell Case Closed, you saw, I'm sure, I hope you saw the uh, news, the now famous or infamous news conference the Air Force did. Oh, yeah. Uh, What was your take? Well, you know, I look at the Air Force report, and I try and keep an open mind about how people interpret all the data, but I think it is somewhat of a stretch to say that people are confusing memories over the space of uh, 10 years. When you look at it, they're claiming that it was a 1956 KC-97 airplane crash uh, in which 11 Air Force members died, and also a 1959 man balloon mishap, and they had pilots, and also were dropping test dummies. You know, uh, I think I can remember exactly, matter of fact, I do remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard that President Kennedy died, because sure. these big events, you remember exactly where you were. I remember sitting in the sixth grade and the teacher coming in and saying, the President just died, and I can tell you exactly the environment, and uh, there's no question about when I, where I was and what happened. I was at Amarillo Air Force Base, John, so you must be a little younger than I am. How old, <laughs> how old are you? Uh, I'm right now 44. Okay. Um, anyway, your, your take is that, I guess, just like mine, um, I felt sorry for the colonel who had to come out there. Absolutely. And, you know, I've talked several times with uh, Lieutenant, now Captain McAndrew, uh, back in the time that he was preparing the Air Force report uh, about three years ago. Uh, he really is convinced that this thing did not happen. And I would suspect that he's doing it out of the highest motivations, and he really believes that the event is fictitious. Now, I personally, I'd say the jury is still out, although there's a preponderance of the evidence that the event really did happen, and it could have been very exotic. But uh, those people are convinced, and they don't necessarily want to look at the data, which is unfortunate. For example, right. they have not interviewed a lot of the first-hand uh, witnesses. All right. Uh, let's, which is some of what we are going to get to tonight. Um, uh, that they did not get to. Uh, one more thing for you to comment on, and that is, of course, the big confab that just went on celebrating the 50th uh, anniversary of Roswell at Roswell. Yep. Uh, the network coverage of it primarily seemed to be of people in tin hats, uh, the museum, that sort of thing, people milling around the crowds, but none of the substance really covered. Uh, how, you, how did you see it? I would agree with that totally. Uh, I wasn't down there that week. I had a personal commitment, but I was there the week before to get a chance to talk to some of the witnesses. But I did see Kevin Randall and Ken Jeffrey on Nightline. Now, I've always had a lot of respect for Ted Koppel. I always thought that he would play a story very straight. But the beginning of the story was introduced as the Roswell myth, 
and so you can tell where the the, the bias it tells you where it's going. going. Yeah, yeah, and so that kind of tipped it off. He introduced Kevin Randall as a true believer, and I thought that was not necessarily in keeping with the dignity of Nightline, which I highly respect. Um, well said. I I agree with you. Most times, Nightline has been. Uh... Uh, one of the better broadcasts to watch uh, with regard to uh, breaking news. Uh, but that's the way the media is. I've learned that about uh, these sorts of things. Um, anyway, um, they could have called it the Roswell Controversy, and it would have been a fair show. Yep, uh, but the Roswell myth, oh, well. Well, you know, you, the, the only time we'll know the Roswell event really happened and the craft, craft was extraterrestrial is when you find a piece of debris that's undoubtedly not from Earth, and you can trace the pedigree back to the Roswell case, and uh, and you can that, that's one way to say I've got a piece of debris that can be actually uh, verified. All right. Now, well, all the, the evidence is anecdotal. Art. Well, now at Roswell, I don't know whether you're aware of it, uh, but there was a presentation mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Paul Davids um, and company uh, with regard to a a piece of claimed wreckage from Roswell, uh, and they claim to have um, reports. Showing and, and by the way, there's a lot of confusion. These are not what are uh, affectionately known as arts parts, so, you know, the stuff I have. Exactly. Um, but they claim to have documentation indicating that um, this piece uh, definitely was not of terrestrial origin. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. Um, in fact, I thought that was an excellent test. Back when you first found arts parts, you and I talked on the telephone, and I, follow, I did a follow-on conversation with Linda Howe, and we talk about ways that it could be identified as being exotic. And sure. one of the ways is to look at the number of uh, the isotope ratio inside the substance. That's, that indicates, you know, there's certain uh, certain isotope that's usually found in the U.S. in certain percentages. I'm sorry, in, in the world in certain percentages. But if you find uh, vastly different percentages uh, in the isotopic ratios in the substance, you can conclude perhaps that it isn't from here. Yes. And I think that's a really good indicator. So I thought that press, co- press conference was very good. I'd like to see where that ends up. Okay. Um any comment on the Mars Pathfinder mission? Great controversy going on about that uh, in some quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in mine. I think we're squarely on Mars. Uh, but the pictures have been incredible. Uh, today's latest example was really neat. I mean, they made up a little movie of the rover bumping up against this rock and nearly climbing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um any comments on the whole Pathfinder thing? You know, Art, it's remarkable what the technology will do. And I don't always agree with Richard Hoagland on various topics. However, I think it was Richard's pressure to keep NASA open to uh, revisit the days back in Viking. You probably remember when the Viking lander of uh, landed on the moon. They had live coverage of that, also live coverage of the, the Voyager flybys. And I was hoping that they would open this thing up real time to the data. And I don't know whether that was a recent decision or not, but they did. And it shows you how exciting it is. I tried to get onto the website. The website has taken millions of hits per day from around the world. Oh, yes. It's a very good PR event for for NASA. I don't know why they don't do this for uh, other missions, and I'd like to see the same thing happen Uh, for Sidonia, frankly. I'd like to see what's really there. So would I. And uh, maybe the next time we go to Sidonia, or uh, actually there's another probe on the way now that will maybe they say, image Cydonia with high-resolution cameras. We shall see. Exactly. All right. You've got some interesting material for us this night, and uh, so why don't we get into it? Okay. Let let me just give you a quick rundown of what we're going to talk about. It's very interesting to listen to the researchers talk about Roswell, but I think it's even more interesting to listen to the first-hand witnesses that actually handled debris were actual participants. Right. 
And the one fortunate thing, since I've had a chance to investigate uh, people at Roswell or talk to people at Roswell, I've gotten to know pretty much most of the major participants uh, as friends. And uh, what I thought I would do is uh, last week when people were thinking about it, I called several people, and I'll tell you who those people were, and said, would you mind uh, giving me your memoirs and answer some questions? They said, fine. Then I thought maybe you might like these too, and they gave me permission to play these on the air. Very good. So what you're going to hear uh, is uh, a conversation, excerpts of a conversation with Walter Hotz. Everybody's heard of the big press release saying that the United States had captured a flying saucer. Right. This is the guy that actually put out the release. The guy who put out the release. Walter, actually, it's Walter Hot. All right. I got corrected. Hot. Everybody pronounces him incorrectly. It's Walter Hot. He said you ought to be Hot. So it's Walter Hot. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, uh, another person is Frank Kaufman. Now, Frank was in uh, a newspaper, U.S. and U.S. News and World Report today, and I'll comment about that later on. But Frank claims to be one of the people that was sent to the impact site to clean up the bodies and the debris, and we'll get some excerpts from him. Also, Jesse Marcel Jr. Now, he is the son of a person named Jesse Marcel, a senior uh, major. Mm-hmm. Now, Marcel was the first person to go to the Brazel Ranch to look at the debris, and he brought the debris home and showed it to his son, and his son still is alive and doing real well. He's a doctor in Montana, and he's going to talk on tape exactly what he saw and what he thinks about the possibility that's a mogul balloon or some other mundane explanation. Other thing I've got is a very rare tape that I don't think has ever been aired before, except I aired it on your show about two years ago. It's a conversation that Jesse Sr. had with Jesse Jr. Uh, when he went back for the first time to Roswell and talked about the experience. Uh, Jesse Jr. happened to find that tape in an old box of debris, and he didn't know why his father recorded it. His father recorded it and put it in a box, hoping that Jesse would find it. So we're going to hear about that. Finally, uh, Colonel Thomas DeBose, who was the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force, he had a conversation with Kevin Randall, and he's going to talk about specifically that this balloon story was a cover story to keep the press off General Rainey's back. That's on tape. And finally, a person named Major Edwin Easley. Uh, he was the provost marshal uh, for the 509th Bomb Group, and uh, he's going to uh, be on, on tape saying that uh, I can't talk about it. I'm still sworn to secrecy. So something definitely odd happened. Well, that's quite a lineup. Uh, that's quite a lineup. And... I remember vaguely the conversation uh, between Jesse Marcel Jr., and I've had him on the air as yep. an interview, mm-hmm. and uh, Senior, but that's a, a very historic, unusual piece of tape. Yeah, you were kind enough, uh, when I did get a hold of the tape, uh, you were kind enough to put me on the air, and we played that one night. So that was about two years ago. <laughs> All right, well, uh, if we have time, I, I don't know how long each one of these is. Uh, They're about two minutes each, maybe less. About, all right, why don't we go ahead and do one, why don't we begin one now? Okay, Art, would you mind if I give a brief history of the, of the incidents? So people no, can get of course not, of course not, go right ahead. Uh, let's talk about what happened in 47. I think a lot of people aren't that familiar with the Roswell case, and so I just pulled together some of the data today, and I'll try and give like a two-minute history of Roswell. Uh, the first big thing that happened was in June, of 26, June 26 of 1947, people probably remember the, the name Flying Saucer, well, the flying saucer term was first coined by a person named Ken Arnold, who was a pilot who happened to be flying near Mount Rainier up here in the northwest near Portland. He saw objects in the sky that were skipping along uh, the air like saucers skipping along water. They weren't shaped like saucers, but they skipped like saucers. Uh-huh. And the news media picked that up. And so between 19, uh, June 26th of 47 and July 7th of 47, I would urge people interested to go look at the library because it's unbelievable what the news stories were uh, uh, those at that particular time. Uh, if you look, almost every other day there's major headlines, 
announcing that uh, airliners had seen flying discs. For example, July 5th here in the Portland, Oregonian. Headline story, airliner crew confirms flying discs over state. Mm-hmm. Other ones, uh, flying saucer reports coming from all over. View of flying saucers over Ontario, dumbfounds veteran pilot and other crew members of an airliner. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's really interesting to look back at that history. So then, uh, after the, as that was going on, July 4th, is when it's believed that the craft crashed near Roswell. Now, there were two sites. One where debris spread down over a ranch. That's commonly called the Brazel Ranch. And also a site apparently closer to Roswell where the actual craft was rec- excuse me, recovered. Then uh, that happened on the night of July 4th. July 5th, uh, people finished the cleanup operation. Uh, on Sunday, uh, we find Mac Brazel making the trip down to Roswell to report that he had found debris. And eventually, on Monday, Monday the 7th, we have people going up to check out the story, and finally, they confirm it by putting out a press release on July 8, 1947, saying that the United States had actually captured the flying saucer. That was in the after, early afternoon. Then, late in the afternoon, they retracted that. So, some papers in the country, you can look it up, and you can see the headline saying that the U.S. has a flying saucer in custody. Other papers that were that had a, uh, a later deadline or earlier deadline did not have that. All right, here's where I get puzzled. Uh, with all of the newspaper headlines, the radio reports, everything occurring in 1947, how could the Air Force, I've got to ask again and again, uh, have referred to the beginning of 1953 uh, to account for something that obviously, uh, and we have the proof, occurred in 1947? No matter what you believe occurred in 1947, they used the beginning of the experiments in 53 to account for it. It's it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's very odd. I think their claim, Art, is back in 1947 that there was a crash, crash of a mogul balloon on the Brazel Ranch. Yes. And they still target that date as being in 1947. The trouble is people were reporting bodies, and so what they did was they looked over the history to see whether they can record anything having to do with body recovery. Well, yeah, but they, nobody reported aliens parachuting in. Uh, right. <laughs> no, no parachutes were reported. You're right. Okay. It, it's, a, it's a very odd... Uh, it's an odd claim by the Air Force. Yes. Okay, what we can do, Art, if you uh, want to, we can get into the first clip. It's a relatively short clip, about uh, two minutes if we have time. Well, now we're getting dangerously close to the bottom of the hour, and I don't okay. want to have to cut it off. Okay. Um, so uh, we can talk about, uh, for example, where do you go from here? Uh, you've been investigating this. Now there has been the big Roswell blowout uh, at the 50-year point. Where do things do you think? Where do you think things go from here with regard to the investigation? Does it all quiet down for another 50 years or what? Um, I don't think so, and I can't give you a lot of details. But there are still witnesses who have not come forward publicly. One who I've been working with for the last two years. Oh. He seems to have remarkable connections. In fact, he told me two years ago that the Air Force was going to talk about uh, a strange uh, foreign aircraft. He called it. Uh, as part of the explanation for Roswell, which turned out to be potentially the Japanese balloon experiments. And uh, that turned out to be correct. And I don't know how he knew that two years in advance, but he apparently has good contacts in the government. And he tells me that records are still available, but the trick is finding them. So a lot of us are really preoccupied with trying to find those, but uh, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to chase down records. Mm-hmm. What do you think's going on now? In other words, Area 51 now. Um, I would... Well, I would suspect that, you know, there's, there's two hypotheses. One is the fact that nothing exotic was going on at Area 51. It's strictly an area where advanced bombers are tested or advanced fighter aircraft are tested. 
But uh, Bob Lazar claimed that near Area 51, an area called S4, they were testing recovered flying saucers or re-engineered flying saucers. Now, I've met Bob Lazar and talked with him for about a half an hour. He yes. seems to be a very sincere person, but sometimes he sincere is. persons can be misleading, right? Yes. But uh, the story that he tells in terms of how the craft was propelled and the consistency by which he tells the story, and he specifically says, I don't know the answer to this when we get outside that area that he says he's familiar with, makes him somewhat of a credible witness. And so um, I, I, it's possible that was going on down there, but it's uh, certainly not a fact. Did you uh, hear the interview uh, we did with Colonel Corso on Sunday's Dreamland? I did. Um, I thought that was um, very compelling material. And uh, in the middle of that interview, he said the uh, flying saucers, the disks, uh, are driven by, in effect, capacitors. A really a fascinating interview. Anyway, listen, hold on, John. We'll be back after the uh, bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Art Bell, somewhere in time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Somewhere in time, the night featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Does it happen to you? Do you do you have a song that just keeps running around in your head? Songs that you've got to play again and again until your ears bleed, until you're satisfied. This is one of them for me. <laughs> this particular reggae version of this had a hard time finding it too, by the way. Anyway, uh, good morning and welcome to the program. My guest is John Kirby, and you're about to hear things that you have never heard before. It'll probably be the last program that we do uh, in sort of closing off the Roswell business for a while. But brace yourself, you're going to hear some pretty interesting information. Streamlink. The audio subscription service of Coast to Coast AM has a new name, Coast Insider. You'll still get all the same great features for the same low price, just 15 cents a day when you sign up for one year. The package includes podcasting, which offers the convenience of having shows downloaded automatically to your computer or MP3 player, and the iPhone app with live and on-demand programs. 
You'll also get our amazing download library of three full years of shows. Just think, as a new subscriber, over 1,000 shows will be available for you to collect, enjoy, and listen to at your leisure. Plus, you'll get streamed and on-demand broadcasts of Art Bell's Somewhere in Time shows and two weekly classics. And as a member, you'll have access to our monthly live chat sessions with George Norrie and special guests. If you're a fan of Coast, you won't want to be without Coast Insider. Visit coasttocoastam.com to sign up today. Here's what you missed on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. There are some who always wonder why, if there are ETs out there, they don't come and bail us out. Why haven't they fixed the oil spill? Why haven't they taken care of famine and wars? Why don't they do that? You know, I think ultimately when this comes out, it'll change everything on the planet. Certainly if they intervene to just kind of like overtly solve our problems, they understand that that would actually hinder our evolution. Now we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Back to John Kirby in Portland. John? Hello, Art. Um, okay, uh, why don't we begin on what you've got? Okay, well, let me take you back to... Tuesday, July 8, 1947, and I've got a copy of a newspaper, the Roswell Daily Record, in my hand, and the headline says, RAAF, that's Roswell Army Airfield, uh, captures flying saucer on ranch in the Roswell region. No details of flying disc are revealed. I'll just read the first paragraph. Uh, the Intelligence Office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field had come into possession of a flying saucer, etc., etc., and so that was a, a headline that went around the world, and the phones were ringing off the hook in Roswell. And the person that actually released that under orders of General Ramey is named Walter Hutt. Now, Walter still is alive and doing well living down in Roswell with his wife, Lorraine. They also call her Pete. And they're very, very gracious people. So uh, what I'll do is let me play you some excerpts of a conversation with Walter that I had two days ago. All right. And the first conversation, the first question was, uh, how did you uh, end up at uh, Roswell Army Airfield, and uh, how did you become the public relations officer? All right. Well, take you back a long way. Uh, out of high school, I went to work for R.R. Donnelly and Sons Company. Stayed with them for a little while, and I worked for Western Electric. And then I went into the military. Became an aviation cadet. Uh, spent a year playing that game and got my commission. And uh, after my commission, I also went through navigation school during that period of time. Came to Roswell, New Mexico, and went to Bombardier School. Uh, after that, I was assigned to a crew, and we did a lot of uh, different things, getting ready to go overseas. Went overseas. I was on Saipan for almost a year, flew 35 missions against Japan. I received a Distinguished Flying Cross, four Air Medals, Purple Heart. Uh, after that was over, I came back to the States and figured, well, the rest of my life will be spent nice and peacefully. And I wasn't back in the States for about a couple of months, and I went back to Kwajalein. I dropped the blast gauge instruments into the atomic explosion on Able Day. 
came back to Roswell, or rather, you know, uh, came back to Roswell. Uh, liked it here, resigned my regular commission, and have been here ever since. I was an insurance agent, a real estate broker, uh, art dealer, just a little bit of everything. Had a lot of fun doing most of it, and retired a number of years ago, and just do what I want now. Now, after you came back to Roswell and uh, worked at the base, what was your role there? I, well, I was a bombardier navigator by profession, but I, my additional duty, which is what I spent most of my time as, was a public relations officer for the base. Now, how did you become a public relations officer? Did you happen to know uh, the base commander, or what was the process by which you got that job? When we were on Quadjaline, I got a call to report to uh, Colonel Blanchard. I went in to see him, and he said, Hart, what do you know about public relations? I said, nothing, sir. And he said, well, Lord, you're the public relations officer for the air attack unit. <laughs> <laughs> Trial by fire. <laughs> Trial by fire. Well, Art, that gives you an idea of the quality of the people. Okay, John, what we need is a little more audio. Now, I had to boost that all the way up. Uh, okay, I'll do that for you. But if you can give us more audio, it would be good. You betcha. All right. But it shows you the quality of the people. Here's a person that was in Kwajalein, also served uh, uh, overseas, uh, dropped uh, test gauges into atomic blasts. These people at Roswell are not, uh, they're not dum-dums by any means. They're very, very... Uh, no, and he was certainly not a professional PR guy. Uh, I was in the Air Force, John, and, uh, and I laughed and laughed when I heard that because that's exactly <laughs> the way it's done. What do you know about PR? Well, nothing, sir. Well, find out because you're the new PR officer. <laughs> that's exactly how it works. Yeah, I didn't know that story until he told it that way. <laughs> let's, let's talk about uh, another aspect. Some people say that Walter might have gone off half-cocked and just put out this press release on his own, but uh, I asked him about that. Ask him about his autonomy and sure. uh, what his ability was to do things like that and where he got the authorization to put that message out. Here's his response. Oh. In general, I could do just about anything I wanted. Uh, Colonel Blanchard had been a public relations officer when he got out of the point. That was an additional duty that he had picked up and was very, very uh, sympathetic to the duties of a public relations officer. You had to play everything by ear. You didn't know what was going to happen, uh, who downtown would be unhappy about something that some airmen did, uh, who wanted me to put together a parade, uh, I shouldn't say a parade, a float for the parade, a lot of speaking engagements in the surrounding area. It was just a Basically, a pretty much of a full-time job. Then the next question that really comes to mind is, uh, Roswell was a special Army base. I asked him about Roswell because, of course, it was the only base that had the atomic bomb back at the time. And here's what he talked about Roswell. Now, uh, Walter, the uh, Roswell Army Airfield was a special type of base. Can you talk about what types of activities went on there back in 1947? Well, there was a lot of training uh, going on. Uh, primarily, we were the only uh, group capable of carrying and dropping an atomic weapon. Uh, in essence, we didn't do anything phenomenal other than practice and uh, fly our missions and take care of uh, the normal business. Uh, it was no different than any other uh, group function, just the fact that we were 
handling a little bit different type of armament. So these people are GIs, but they're not really, uh, they're certainly not average GIs. Are They're people that uh, have a lot of capabilities and were trusted with the atomic bomb. They're the first people that were actually able to do that. Sure. So uh, the next question was, I asked them, how did this whole thing happen? I asked them to tell the story from beginning to end, how the press release was uh, issued, and who told him to do that. Okay. Well, it was a very, very simple thing. I got a call from uh, Colonel Blanchard, and I can't give you an exact time because I don't remember. It was somewhere probably between 10 and 10.30 in the morning. I went up to his office. Uh, I'd been called up there. I think the base adjutant called me. And he, after I gave him a highball and all that, uh, said, I've got a press release I want you to take to town and deliver to all the news media. Now, did you write that or did he write that? Did he give uh, you a draft? He gave me a draft of it. And I had to just you know, fill in a few things. I... Uh, it was no great, uh, fantastic thing. It was a very, very simple uh, press release, very short and to the point that, uh, here we are, and that was it. I brought it to the uh, local newspapers, the uh, radio station, and came home and had lunch. Went back to the base, and the phones were ringing off the hook. I shouldn't say phones, the phone was ringing off the hook. I answered the telephone continually until, oh, I would guess it was around 4 o'clock. It started tapering off by 4.30. I felt I could get out of there, and I came home and had dinner. So it sounded like a fairly mundane day for Walter. but uh, Well, now there's, there's a part that I don't get. In other words, Walter uh, is just sort of going ho-hum. You know, it's just another day. Uh, here I had this press release about the Air Force captures a flying disc, and I just took it down there and came home and had lunch. Like, it was no big deal. I mean, he must have known what he was, <laughs> what he was delivering. Well, you know, it's odd. I'm wondering whether people got so, so used to the fact that there were flying discs flying around. That's why I read some of the history, all the articles in the newspapers. People were seeing this stuff, and people had been trying to capture one. I figured, well, I, I captured one, and uh, and that's it. But the big question I've got, Art, and the thing that's always bothered me about the Roswell case is, if a flying saucer were downed at an Air Force base, would you go public and say, we've captured one, or would you try and keep it under wraps? I still don't understand why Blanchard came out with that release. Uh, and he, Blanchard, is actually the one who concocted the main body of that release. That's correct. Now, Wade Walter recalls it. Blanchard had the main release finished, and Walter had to just pretty it up and uh, release it to the, uh, the local newspapers and also uh, put it on the wire. I mean, but still, if you're carrying a release down to the local media saying, we have captured a flying disc, I, it's amazing to me that he regarded that as such a ho-hum kind of thing. It might be ho-hum because he's told the story so many times. Maybe so. <laughs> I mean, he, one more for... it's like carrying dynamite. Well, yes, go ahead. Oh, that's right. What were, you, what were you going to say? Uh, well, it's it's uh, it's like carrying a, a lit stick of dynamite uh, to me. And uh, even, but in retrospect, he describes it as well. You know, I just took it down there and I handed it to him, went home and had some lunch, and yep. then I was very surprised at the results. <laughs> exactly. 
Well, uh, I wanted to find out whether he knew anything other than what he had written in the press release, and so here's the next question. Uh, uh-huh. Basically, were you privy to any other additional information or were in any private meetings to talk about this or see any exotic materials or bodies? Here's uh-huh. his response. I was not privy to any of that information, just the information that Blanchard gave me to put in a press release. So did you ever see any debris or bodies associated with this particular incident? No, sir, I did not. As a matter of fact, uh, at the time, even with that press release, there was no mention uh, of bodies to me. You know, one thing that, uh, that people have talked about, Art, is if this was happening, wouldn't you see a lot of activity uh, arriving, dignitaries, et cetera, et cetera? So I asked Walter if he remembered anything that was really unusual, people flying in, flying out. Now, one thing he does say, and you'll hear, is uh, he doesn't recall any unusual activity, which I thought was a little bit odd, but that's certainly uh, not necessarily inconsistent. Perhaps people were coming in and not telling the public relations person what's going on. Right. Do you remember any increased activity at the time, for example, an unusual number of incoming or outgoing flights or dignitaries? Not really. And to me, uh, so many of those things happen on the flight line if people were coming in the town or they were flying in. Uh, that was done on the flight line, and my office was quite a distance from it. If it was of any import, uh, I was told about it, and I'd go out with a cameraman, and we'd take pictures and do all those things. Uh, in essence, I didn't get a lot of that information. Or if they wanted it publicized, they let me know, and if uh, they wanted to keep it quiet, they didn't say anything to me. <laughs> Uh, do you remember anything happening over the next couple of days as fallout to the event, or did it pretty much end on that particular day? Well, I think the only thing that happened beyond that was General Ramey putting out his uh, press release to the effect that it was not a uh, flying disc, it was a weather balloon. Now, were you involved in that release at all? No, sir, that came directly from him. So pretty much that ended Walter's involvement. The only thing that he's really done is uh, tell the story about uh, a few thousand times since that date. Art, uh, he's never changed the story. It's always been consistent. That's a sign of a, a credible witness, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. He sounds very sincere, very matter-of-fact, and it is hard to discern whether um, in his telling now it sounds so mundane, uh, whether it was really that way then or whether it's just in the retelling it has become mundane for him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, judging by what people have said uh, for their time at the base, they said it was very chaotic at the time, no matter what happened. And so I think there were a lot of people that found it a lot more exciting, but uh, apparently Walter uh, did not afterwards. Well, there's another question that often comes to mind, and that is it's, uh, I talk to intelligence officers about this, and they say when an event happens at a base, would you uh, sometimes they tend to transfer people out of the base so that people can't, continue to tell the story or cooperate each other. Sure. So I asked Walter whether there was any transfers out of the bases he recalled. Mm-hmm. Some witnesses have alleged that after the event, uh, folks that were at the base who might have been a participant in the event uh, were scattered to avoid having a lot of people at Roswell that remember the particular incident. Do you recall any uh, large amount of transfers out of the base uh, after July 47? No, I do not. I uh if there were large numbers of them, I think I would have known about it, and it might have stuck in my mind, but uh, there were so many other things going on. Uh, 
as running around in circles. Hmm. So, but he also indicated that uh, uh, if a if, if something like this happened, it wouldn't always be uh, related to him, Art. And uh, one other question I asked him, I said the base was, uh, you know, there's a lot of secrecy on a base. Why would the base commander issue the press release to the world? Uh, pretty much of a question we just asked a few moments ago. Uh, here's his answer. All right. I think, if you want my opinion, I think this was just uh, part of a well-orchestrated plan. Civilians had seen this material. Military people had seen the material. What better way to cover it up than to have the local commander said, we've got a flying saucer in our possession. It was found on a ranch out here. And uh, the next day, the general <coughs> said, oh, they were wrong. That was not a flying saucer. That was a weather balloon, a new type of weather balloon. You've got to take yourself back to 1947, a difference in just about everything. When the commander said that uh, this is what happened, that's what happened. You didn't say, oh, I don't think so, or anything of the sort. That's right. You accepted it pretty much. You know, Art, I think you talked about it on your show several times, that it's really amazing how the military has changed in the perception of the public. When a military commander would say something years ago, or I think you also mentioned the FBI, you took it as gospel. That's, well, that's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, that's the way it was. Actually, uh, in the military, you took it uh, not just as gospel, as an order that um, you would follow, period. I mean, you were trained, and the military trained you, John, to um, uh, accept orders without question. Mm -hmm. uh, not to think about it. It wasn't your job to think. It was your job to do if they told you to do something, and this would uh, certainly apply to a PR officer, you do it. That's all. Uh, you do it. And maybe in that light, since he wasn't really a PR guy at heart, uh, he was just following orders. That's all. To here, take this downtown. Okay. And he did. Came back and had lunch. That's so, right. uh, you know, it, my sense of what I've just heard is that he's very much was very much just an innocent in this, following orders. He seemed very sincere. Uh, that's that's right, and if you could argue that there is an inner circle, he was not part of the inner circle. He just was a guy that put out the initial word, which was eventually uh, contradicted by General Ramey uh, a few hours later. Uh, well, indeed so, and um, um, I'll tell you what. Uh, let's break here. It is now the top of the hour, and when we come back, we will continue. We've got uh, some audio clips you're just not going to believe, folks. My guest is John Kirby from Portland, and we're going to kind of put a, a wrap uh, tonight on this Roswell business, at least for this year. Uh, coming up next, some audio clips you've probably never heard. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997.
Premier Radio Networks presents Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired July 10th, 1997. My guest is John Kirby, and we're kind of putting a wrap on Roswell uh, with the actual voices from Roswell. Walter Hutt, uh, who is the guy who actually delivered the press release to the newspaper and to the radio station in Roswell, uh, was just heard from. Coming up, you'll hear the Marcells, Senior and Junior, and more. Uh, there's quite a bit ahead, so uh, stand by. Streamlink, the audio subscription service of Coast to Coast AM, has a new name, Coast Insider. You'll still get all the same great features for the same low price, just 15 cents a day when you sign up for one year. The package includes podcasting, which offers the convenience of having shows downloaded automatically to your computer or MP3 player, and the iPhone app with live and on-demand programs. You'll also get our amazing download library of three full years of shows. Just think, as a new subscriber, over 1,000 shows will be available for you to collect, enjoy, and listen to at your leisure. Plus, you'll get streamed and on-demand broadcasts of Art Bell's Somewhere in Time shows and two weekly classics. And as a member, you'll have access to our monthly live chat sessions with George Norrie and special guests. If you're a fan of Coast, you won't want to be without Coast Insider. Visit coasttocoastam.com to sign up today. Now, we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. You might want to make note, tomorrow night, Father Malachi Martin will be here. And uh, an interesting note for you... uh, at his age, what an incredibly active man, advisor to two popes, and uh, virtually the real exorcist. And when we talked to his secretary, I think it was uh day before yesterday, she said uh, he's attending, uh, doing an exorcism right now, and should be back shortly. Can you imagine that? At his age, uh, still doing exorcisms. Uh, it is an incredible uh, story, and if you have never heard Father Malachi Martin, you're not going to want to miss uh, tomorrow night, believe me. And we're going to lay heavily on the phones for you uh, tomorrow night. Uh, back now to John Kirby in Portland. Uh, John, you're back on the air. Okay, Art, hi. Where do we go from here? Well, the next witness I was going to talk about and uh, have excerpts from is a, a gentleman named Frank Kaufman. Yes. Now, Frank is a person who claims to have been called to clean up the debris site, actually the impact site, yes. just north of Roswell, and he'll describe the bodies, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to talk about Frank a bit. I first met him back in 1994, and that was when uh, Kevin Randall, Don Schmidt, and Phil Klass, and several others and myself were down in uh, Roswell uh, with the CBS 48 Hours crew. Right. And also met him again uh, when he was doing a Channel 4 special for Great Britain. Now, he normally doesn't do a lot of interviews, but he's done a couple and has done several in the for recent times. Now, it's interesting because I happened to talk with him today because he said, John, take a look at the U.S. News and World Report for July 14th. And so I pulled it up, and I'll just read you about three sentences, if you don't mind. Sure. said, uh, the oddest witnesses of all is Kaufman, who claims he's still part of a secret military team that recovered the UFO in 1947, although he was discharged from the military in 1945 
And despite what other magazines say, uh, he's never substantiated his claim that he later worked at the Roswell base as a civilian. And he said, when I spoke with Kaufman, Kaufman last year for MSNBC, I couldn't believe that this tail-spinning old coot was a leading witness in several old books, several books and TV shows. Well, I haven't heard people called old coots for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think Frank was probably less less than pleased, but he asked me to tell a story that I'll tell now. Uh, when people look at Frank's military record, it suggests that he was discharged in 1945. That's actually the case, but... When I was down, he showed me documentation that he, in 1945, transferred from a military person. He was a NCO, a non-commissioned officer, IC, in charge. Right. And I saw the paperwork that said he was transferred to become a member of S1, which is mili- personnel and statistical team, a civilian, but still reporting into the military structure. That's actually very common, John. That, that's what I heard. Now, you can probably comment a lot more on that part, but uh, I understand that there are cases where civilians still are associated with the military. Oh, absolutely. No, it's very common for people uh, to retire or leave the military, become discharged, and uh, take a, um, a civilian job doing virtually the same thing, but making a lot more money mm-hmm. uh, for the military. And uh, uh, so, no, it's very common. So he couldn't tell me very much about it. He said that it primarily had to do with intelligence, and he and I have talked about some things that he did, but I'd rather not uh, get into it right now. But it had to do with uh, kind of keeping a lid on the secrets of the base uh, because, in fact, at that time, there was a lot of Soviet spies trying to get at our military secrets, especially the A-bomb. Sure. And so there was a huge staff, apparently, that were trying to protect the secrets, and rightfully so. So he was one of that uh, one, of, one of the members of that staff. So, uh, once again, Frank claims that he went up to clean up the impact site. So let's talk to Frank just uh, on tape here. And the first thing I did was ask him about his background. Well, I was assigned to a uh, to a special unit at the uh, Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. Um, I was a civilian at the time. Um, I got out in, from my military service in 1945, and, uh, and then I was, uh, oh, my call, reinstated back into service only in, in, as a civilian doing the same same assignment, same work. There you go. Wasn't that unusual to get reclassified as a civilian and still maintain your operations at the base? No, it was not because I was up, uh, 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 I was up for separation to be discharged. Okay. I could have re-enlisted, but I, I chose not to, and so I remained as a as a civilian. But a different reporting structure in that particular right, case. Right. Generally, uh, John, people are given GS ratings uh, under those conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just continue basically doing the same kind of work. Yeah, that's what, he, that's what he claimed. And the documentation that I saw makes me believe in art. So okay. I still think he's a very good witness. Now, one of the things about Frank is he worked closely with Butch Blanchard, the base commander, and also Jesse Marcel. Now, these two people have been often criticized as not knowing enough to distinguish a weather balloon from a crash flying disc. Yes. So I asked Frank what he thought of those people. Well, they were fine people, very uh, very thorough, uh, particularly uh, Jesse Marcel. Major, he was the base intelligence officer, and, of course, uh, Blanchard was the base commander of the 509th. But they were very thorough people, very experienced people. I think this is the important thing, John, that people understand. 
the 509th was a premier group uh, charged with carrying the atomic bomb, uh, the only one at that time. And we're talking about uh, the, uh, the base commander. We're talking about uh, the intel intelligence officer, Major Marcel. These were non-trivial people uh, who would certainly not be inclined to misidentify something uh, uh, so terribly um, uh, as to say it is a... Uh, uh, in other words, they would know uh, well the difference between a weather balloon and a flying saucer. Yeah, you would certainly think so. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the way the story goes, Art, is uh, Frank was at Roswell, but remember the articles I read at the beginning of the show, in case some people didn't get it, um, there was a lot of sightings about a week before the Roswell case all over the country. Yes. And uh, it turns out that many of these sightings were going on near military bases. One was at White Sands, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so they asked Frank to go out and look at the radar at White Sands and report back to uh, Roswell what he saw because there was apparently a very good radar station at White Sands. So I asked him what he was doing at White Sands and to tell the story. Well, yeah, the the uh, the uh, sightings or or the blips on the radar actually uh, uh, was noted uh, latter part of June, well, about mid June, and uh, up till July, and uh, and it was in July that we were called from Roswell Army Field to uh, to White Sands to. To uh, view the blips, because we had radar experienced radar people in uh, giving us a radar reading. Why, why were you personally personally selected to go to White Sands? Because I was part of this unit, special unit. And the mission of that special unit was what? Oh, doing investigative work and so on. You see, this this base here, you know, was one of the hottest bases in the world, and uh, you had the Norton bomb site, you had the 509th, there was um, Los Alamos, and you had activities going on at White Sands and Holloman Air Force Base. So um, it was we were invited in, in, uh, involved in those security reasons or security activities, I should say. Well, you can certainly say that White Sands and Roswell were, were key bases. Oh, of course. And so uh, what happened after that was he saw the blip disappear on the radar screen, which alerted people that a craft had possibly crashed. So uh, here's a continuation of the story. Well, this one particular night, uh, there was a severe thunderstorm in this entire area, and uh, we were in White Sands, um, uh, watching the radar screen, and we noticed that the the radar screen just the blips got uh, wider and wider and more pronounced, and then the screen lit up. And our radar man told us that he thought that possibly something went down. He wasn't sure where, but east of White Sands. And of course, as you know, radar was limited. In those days, I mean, it wasn't sophisticated as it was today, but he estimated something went down just east of uh, White Sands, and, uh, and then the radar screen just went back to normal. So we were ordered back to Roswell, and on our way back to Roswell, we were in constant radio communication. Well, people driving on U.S. Highway 285 north going south 
notice this orange ball falling towards Earth. And it was common in those days to call the base and uh, notify them that uh, possibly a plane went down. That, that was a common practice during those days. And uh, when we got back to Roswell, we were told that that this flame or ball was seen about 40, 45 miles north of Roswell. And uh, that's how we knew just where the impact site was. Well, we, we sent out the MPs first. Now, this was a special unit of MPs. These fellows were highly trained, and they located the area for us. So when we got there, when uh, uh, we had these portable uh, uh, searchlights, and we noticed a craft embedded in an arroyo, a craft of unknown origin. We knew it wasn't a plane, it wasn't a balloon, and it wasn't anything that we've seen before. So something was definitely crash that was unusual. Now, uh, Art, you just interviewed Colonel Corso. Yes. And uh, one thing that's interesting is two years ago, Frank told the story that Corso corroborated in his book. Uh, Corso indicated that when he uh, analyzed the craft, it looked like there was light amplification technology on it. Yes. Well, when I talk with Frank, unfortunately I don't have this on, on uh, Mike, but uh, he'll tell other parts of the story. When he, I asked him whether he looked in the craft and could describe the craft. He said that uh, he looked in momentarily and saw through the uh, canopy of the craft as if it was daylight, even though it was nighttime outside, implying there was light amplification going through the canopy. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what Corso reported as technology that was dispersed from the Roswell crash uh, into industry. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, let's ask uh, Frank what the, what the craft was like as best he can remember. All right. Can you describe the craft in as much detail as you remember, Frank? Well, as much as I can remember, the, the craft was about... Uh, Oh, maybe 20, 24 feet, 20, 24 feet in, in, in length, about 12, 14 feet in width, and approximately 6 feet in height. Huh. It wasn't round with a, with a dome type. It was almost like a V-shape, a little similar to a, 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 a stealth bomber on that, that order of design. There was there was a glow still around around the uh, the craft itself, but it glow. it uh, it diminished quite rapidly by the time we got there. And one of the chemical boys, I imagine they were examining it, I guess, for about forty five minutes, if I can remember, before we were allowed to uh, get close to it. Did you have the opportunity to look inside the craft, and did you see anything? Well, very briefly, I got uh, uh, I looked inside. And I noted that uh, there was uh, one body was thrown up against the arroyo. One body was half in the craft, half out. It was spread at the seam. And then we, uh, one of the uh, one of our people noticed that deterioration was setting in on the skin. So we ordered body bags and had them removed and and uh, sent to the base hospital. In Colonel Corso's book, he mentions that uh, one of the creatures was shot. Do you agree with that? No. Corso wasn't there. So, um, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Wasn't shot. Was shot. Huh. 
So uh, Colonel Corso's book, he took uh, second-hand accounts or first-hand accounts and incorporated that into the book. And I, when I read that, I was very surprised, and so I went back and specifically asked Frank about that. But he claims that uh, no, no creature was shot. Uh, they happened to be dead at the time. Nevertheless, there it is, eyewitness testimony of bodies inside. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. Now, Art, now you've talked to Ray Santilli in the past. Yes. And you've talked to people that uh, uh, have looked at the Ray Santilli film. Sure. So an obvious question was, Does this? Uh, do the creatures look anything like the creatures in the Santilli film? Exactly. So uh, here's a short answer from uh, Frank about that. Have you had the opportunity to look at the old alien autopsy film which showed control panels with hand indentations? Right. You mean the Santelli film? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's a hoax. Okay, so you did not see any control panels uh, inside the crypt that looked like the things Nothing in like that, no. Nothing like that. But these were good-looking people, uh, John. Uh, they, I would say they're probably 5'3", five, 5'4", five, in height. Maybe five five, uh, ash color skin, uh, eyes uh, not as large or grotesque as as you see today. They had small ears, small nose. Really, really good looking people. Good looking people. Yeah, you know, uh, I've seen sketches that Frank has drawn or with, drawn with the assistance of other people. Yes. You know, you, you've seen pictures of the Greys. Uh, yes. In popular magazines. Sure. The pictures that were sketched by Frank uh, look much more normal, the head larger than normal, but the eyes nowhere near as large as the large eyes you typically see. Well, he used the word people. Is that a misnomer? Well, he always called them little people. Little he, people. But implying that he, his famous line is they weren't from Texas. And so uh, <laughs> he clearly says that they weren't of this earth. But uh, he, he describes them as almost like small people. He said they didn't look that much different than ourselves. You know, in the sense that you have the big heads of the, uh, the typical creatures you see in, in the literature, but they said they were a lot different nevertheless. Huh. So uh, that's basically the end of uh, the Frank Kaufman testimony. But other, other things, we can move on to Jesse Marcel when you want to do that. All time. right, we'll do that after the bottom of the air. Ah, the little people. Um, <laughs> but definitely, again, and this is an important point, not of this earth. Uh, good looking. I guess you would use the word people naturally. Right. Um, but made not, it clear that it was not of this earth. That's what he told The me. other interesting thing was an orange ball. Uh, I've not heard it described that way before, falling. And then uh, his description of the craft itself as glowing after it, uh, after it hit the ground. Exactly. That's how he said he found the craft. He indicated that people reported the craft was down. They knew by radar generally where it went down. They thought it was on Highway 285 north of town. No, said, uh, nobody, no witnesses saw parachutes or anything. Uh, no, absolutely. And, in fact, I would doubt they would do parachuting at 1130 at night. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, well, again, I, I keep thinking of the Air Force explanation. And uh, uh, these were good-looking people. All right, I saw the dummies, the crash dummies the Air Force showed. Uh, I would not describe them as good-looking people. Moreover, uh, they were fully uh, at least six feet uh, tall, I would say. They were as tall as the uh, Air Force officers that were sort of jokingly uh, saying, here we are, buddies with the, the crash dummies. Is that your take? Uh, yeah, these 
From what Frank describes, they're much different. They're smaller. The dummies I did see in the Air Force report were full size, and so you could not explain the size of All right, coming up, uh, audio from Jesse Marcel, Jr., and a very, very rare clip of a discussion between Jesse Marcel, Jr. and Jesse Marcel, Sr. This is one you probably never, never heard before, as much as what you've already heard is. So, um, we'll be back in just a moment. John Kirby is my guest. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Somewhere in time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Top of the morning, I'm Art Bell. John Kirby is my guest with live, well, not live, but with uh, actual clips from uh, older people who were actually at Roswell. Coming up, the Marcells, both junior and senior. And a lot of this you will never have heard. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Back now to Portland and John Kirby, and coming up, the Marcells. John? That's right, Art. Let me just uh, set the stage for a moment. Uh, when the crash occurred, Jesse Marcel Sr., a major, went up to retrieve the debris and brought that back to the Roswell base. But on the way back, he stopped and showed it to his wife and his son. And so, uh, although Jesse Marcel Sr., the major, has uh, passed away, uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., the son who looked at the debris and handled it, uh, is still alive. Now, there's been a lot of uh, claims over the last couple of years that this thing was, a, was really a mogul balloon or it was per the Air Force report dummies, and so I specifically talked to Jesse about what he thought in terms of this being mogul or this being actually something that was more exotic than that. So uh, we can hear some of his comments. First of all, I asked him what his background was, what he was doing in 47, and what he's doing right now. Here somewhere. Oops, someplace here. Oh, here we go, sorry. 
well as uh, 1940s, I was going to school uh, at Roswell. I think it was the uh, St. Peter's uh, School there in Roswell, in grade school. And, of course, my dad was the Air Force Intelligence Officer at the Roswell Army Airfield. And today you're a physician. Right. I uh, have a practice of medicine in... Uh, actually specializing in ear, nose, and throat disease here in Helena, Montana, where I've been for the last 26 years. Now, you were down in Roswell for the 50th anniversary celebration. Uh, what were your thoughts about that? Well, we just got back today, as a matter of fact. It was uh, quite a carnival atmosphere, which was, uh, I guess it was good for the uh, Roswell Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> Great comment, because it was good for the Roswell Chamber of Commerce. Sure. I think you've heard some of the stories. But, uh, no, the big thing is, what did he do back in 1947? Right. Now, uh, I specifically asked to tell the story as best he could about what happened when his dad brought the debris home. And so this is what he told me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as, my, as you know, my dad was a base intelligence officer, and as such, it was his job to investigate unusual events, you know, or, uh, aircraft accidents, things of this nature. And uh, it wasn't too unusual for him to be out of the house for a period of time. And uh, that night in particular, I remember he woke my mother and myself up very excited because he found, you know, he was out to recover some debris from the desert out of Roswell. And he felt this was unusual enough that he wanted us to see it. So he uh, came in, woke us up, and uh, I think he said something like a word like a flying saucer, although I'm not sure about that, but I think that was the meaning he was getting to us. Can you describe what you saw? Well, when I well, mother, I got up in the in the kitchen. There was a lot of debris on the floor, and uh, there was some metal foils, some um, metal uh, structural members like I beams, and some black plastic uh, like uh, bakelite at that time. And I do remember the first thing he wanted us to do was to look for any electronic components such as vacuum tubes or resistors, condensers, when but there wasn't anything like that. Uh, how much debris did you see? Well, it was enough to cover an uh, 8 by 10 foot floor. And I think there's still more in the, in the car that he had not brought in. So obvious, a lot of debris, Art. And, uh, An 8 by 10 foot floor, that is a lot of debris to have hauled home. Yeah, in fact, they brought it back in an old car. And they, uh, I think they had a car and perhaps a truck, but I think uh, Jesse Sr. was driving a car. So as you, as you heard, Jesse Jr. said that he thought more debris was still outside in the car. So... It wasn't a trivial amount of stuff. So, you know, one of the questions is, what was the debris like? Is it similar to a mogul balloon? Could you bend it? What did it seem like? And so this is what his answer was to that. You know, I handled it. I picked it up, but I didn't try to bend it or, or stress it in any way. I just handled it and just looked at it. And uh, to me, it just looked like uh, some foil-like material, but uh, not reinforced foil with paper or any other backing, but just a plain foil. Was it flexible at all, as far as you could tell? You know, I think it would have been had I tried to bend it. It looked like it would have been anyway. So. Now, you also saw what looked like I-beams. Can you describe those? Well, that was the most peculiar part of this whole thing. There were some uh, metal I-beams. Uh, uh, they're a quarter of an inch uh, or three-eighths of an inch in uh, width and about 12 to 18 inches long. And when you look at the inner surface with the, uh, through the light over your left shoulder, it looked like there was some form of writing along the inner surface of this. And uh, it was kind of a purple, violet, metallic hue. And uh, I know my first uh, impression was some sort of hieroglyphic type symbols, but looking at it a little closer, 
they weren't really hieroglyphics, but just like hieroglyphics. Hmm. You know, the strange thing about this art is uh, a recent report suggested that if this really was a mogul balloon, uh, when they look back at some of the mogul debris or mogul structure, there was um, tape on it, which had some flowers. Now, why in the world they would put flowery tape on a mogul device back in 1947, I'm not sure. But they said that the, perhaps what happened was this tape had flowers on it. It was laying in the moist air, and so the flowers blend, blended through the tape and actually uh, became embedded on the material. And so he was looking at material that looked like it was embossed, but it was really not. So I asked Jesse what he really thought about that possibility. I don't think there's anything like that. I, uh, when I went down to Roswell, I went by Socorro, New Mexico, to talk to uh, Professor uh, Moore, who was one of the project people on Mogul. And he was kind enough to bring a radar target from a Mogul balloon to my motel room where I examined it. And, and I questioned him very specifically about the tape with the uh, flowers or whatever is on it. And uh, what he described was far different from what I saw. The, the tape where these flowers were imprinted were, were much too wide, maybe an inch or more wide, whereas the figures I saw were much smaller than that, you know, like a quarter of an inch. And uh, yeah, I don't think these were rubbed off on the inside surface of that uh, metal beam either. Now, were these silver-colored beams, or were they uh, more of a, a balsa wood type? Well, it, uh, they were light like balsa wood, but I don't recall them. I, I recall them as being metal. You know, I built a lot of balsa wood projects, you know, stick models at that time. But uh, so I think I would recognize balsa wood, but uh, my impression was metal, not balsa wood. So one of the other things that uh, they claimed in terms of the mogul balloon, a uh, mogul, if I understand correctly, had it was a, a balloon with rubber on the interior with a silver coating. Right. And, you know, that could explain why it might have been resilient. You could squeeze it and it would pop back. So I asked uh, Jesse Marcel, Jr. about that. One of the unique things about the mogul balloon construction, as I recall, is it was foil on a rubberized backing. Right. Uh, which might have given it some strange, resilient characteristics. Did it look anything like that as far as you can recall? Well, you know, I asked Dr. Moore about the foil, because uh, the foil I saw was not backed with or reinforced in any way, shape, or form. You know, the foil he showed me with the current, with that uh, mobile target that he had there, was paperback. And he did say that uh, the foil was paperback. There were other, other foil that was not paperback, but he did have some sort of uh, uh, structural rigidity to it. But the foil I saw did not have anything like that, not, no reinforcement at all. A while back, there was a film released from Race Antilles showing wreckage from the uh, Roswell car, supposedly. Did the wreckage that you saw look anything like the, the wreckage shown in the footage? No, I, I can't say it did at all. You know, there's no, there's no uh, comparison of the I-beams they showed in the film was much too big. And uh, the letters look different, too. So I think that's pretty conclusive. You know, he went out and talked to uh, Dr. Moore, who was the one in charge of Mogul, and yes. looked at some of the old Mogul debris, and it did not look anything like the old Mogul debris that they compared it to. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument. Okay, that may have been a lower audio level, but I was kind of losing audio there toward the end. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll try and keep that up. All right. Now, the other question was, uh, were these really looking like flowers, or what did the hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics look like? Because right. you've seen the Santilli film. And uh, they look like they were uh, actually Anglo characters. And so this is what uh, Jesse Jr. said about that. All right. Can you describe any of the characters in more detail? I think you mentioned flowers. Were, were there geometrical shapes as well? Yeah, you know, I didn't see flowers, but uh, uh, these were more like geometrical shapes, like truncated uh, oh, pyramids. Uh, 
The one I remember in particular, it looked like a, a ball on top of a pyramid uh, that was truncated, so like a, a seal balancing a ball on its uh, uh, nose. That's the reason I recall that one. And, you know, Art, it seems like there are so many people saying they were sworn to secrecy. I asked him what happened afterwards because, if you remember the Roswell movie, perhaps, it indicated that he had saved a piece of debris, and his dad, Jesse Marcel Sr., came back and said, uh, I need that debris back. And so I asked him what really happened and whether he talked about it to, uh, afterwards and whether he was told not to talk about it. Right. Well, what happened is that night, you know, we packaged the uh, debris back up and put it in the car, and he uh, drove off. And I didn't see him for a while. Maybe not the next day or maybe the day after that, I'm not sure. But when he came in, he was quite clear that we were not to talk about this any longer. Now, in the Roswell film, it showed that you had a piece of debris which you had to give back. Is that true? Uh, not true. <laughs> so, didn't, didn't keep any of it. So, uh, once again, the, sometimes, uh, the license in a movie is a little bit different than reality. Sure. Now, one thing I asked him, Art, was uh, a final question. How did this affect your dad's career? It seems like if somebody were to make a major error, uh, identifying a weather balloon as a flying saucer, it would tend to uh, hurt their career. Sure. And I asked him what happened afterward to his dad. Here's what he said. How do you think that affected your dad and affected your dad's career? Well, you know, I don't think it affected him uh, or his career very much. You know, as far as that not being able to tell the difference between a radar balloon and a, and a flying saucer, he, he did have uh, training in radar school, which uh, I'm sure he recognized the different types of radar targets, the Rowan targets for which is what the uh, mobile balloon carried. So uh, he did not confuse what he saw with a, with a radar target. And I can tell you right now, what I saw was not a radar target either because I you know, know enough about that to even tell that. And, uh, but as far as causing problems for his career, it did not cause any problems for the career because actually he was promoted a short time after that. Did he ever give you any more details about the crash or the debris afterwards? Well, we... Oh, years later, we briefly discussed it, and I, uh, that's after he had come back from a trip out there to the behest of one of the uh, oh, stations there in, in New Orleans. And I asked him, was there any debris left? He said, no, we vacuumed the whole head up, as you know. Mm. And uh, we briefly described uh, what we recall seeing as the, oh, the, what the metal looked like, the beams, and what the lighting looked like, and we all kind of coincided with what, what we recall. So that's Jesse Marcel Jr.'s story, Art. I, I think it's really interesting to talk to a first-hand witness and to see what they think about some of the Air Force reports that are going out now. And uh, uh, it looks like it's definitely not a mogul balloon, at least in the opinion of Jesse Jr. All right. Uh, now, you've got a very historic piece of tape, I know, uh, that you somehow got from Jesse Marcel Jr., a conversation between uh, Jr. and Sr. That's correct. Now passed on, and... Um, do you have that? I've got it ready to go. In fact, uh, you heard him say at the end of that statement that uh, his dad only talked about it several years later when he went back to Roswell. Right. It's curious. I don't know why, but when after Jesse Sr. got back from Roswell, he called his son, and normally a parent would not record a telephone conversation to his son. Absolutely. But in this case, he did. Hmm. And he uh, stuck the tape in some personal art, personal materials, and he put it up in the attic of, of Jesse Jr.'s home. And so after he died, Jesse went back and looked through some of the materials and found this tape and said, that's really odd. Why did my father leave this? And so he played the tape. It's a long tape. I've cut it down to only a couple of minutes. And it talks about his return to Roswell and what he thought of it. 
it's difficult to uh, hear all the information, but I'll we'll, we'll give it a try for uh, about a minute or so. But he's talking about coming back and feeling tired because he was with a film crew all day, and there were high winds, and so it caused some problems with the filming. Uh, they visited their old, old uh, house in Roswell, both inside and outside, and people took them back in the house again. They looked at the floor where the debris was spread out, and uh, no no debris was there anymore because uh, it was vacuum clean. So we'll, we'll just listen to about a minute or so of this. All right, let's give it a try. Well, finally got back home. How well, you could to Roswell? Rough. <laughs> oh, man, tiring. I'm happy to be back home, I guarantee you. Yeah. It's, uh... What an ordeal. Yeah, but it was three days of it. And besides that, the second day, I spent all day looking for that ranch where we found the stuff. Uh-huh. We finally located it. It was too late to take pictures, so we had to drive all the way back into the uh-huh. And the next morning, we took off and went out there, and they got their pictures, but the only thing, we ran into the high winds. Yeah, that's what weather was say. We did find the place. They got the pictures. Of course, they couldn't take any sound there because... Uh, uh-huh. Too much wind for the microphones. Uh-huh. So now they're, <laughs> they're going to have to come back next week over here, and they'll have to dub the sound there. Yeah, I like to do that either. So, the things went okay. Well, it's so tired, though. I'll tell you, I got fed up with this. <clears throat> but I'll tell you what I, I did. I got a chance to visit 1300 West 7. Oh, you did? Not only externally, but internally. I met the people who lived there. Oh, for goodness sake. I even got my pictures made out there. Well, you get the feel, Art. Uh, he's back there for the first time, went back to his old house, and it's surprising that after all the years he did not say anything about it to Jesse Jr. until that uh, particular call about 25 years later. It's even more interesting that he would choose to record it. Why in the world would he record a conversation like that with his son Well, unless, well, unless he intended to leave a marker? I, I, I think that's the case. Now, why would you do it other than think it might be an historic tape that your son would want after you died? So I was very happy that uh, Jesse Marcel let me take this tape and play it on the air because it had a lot of personal things on there because at the time, Jesse Marcel Jr.'s uh, wife had died, so his father was very compassionate, consoling him for that. And uh, so obviously those excerpts aren't on the tape that you heard, but uh, it shows what a fine man Mr. Marcel Sr. was. Yes. Yes, that's really something, John. Um... And I, I'm sitting here contemplating uh, any possible explanation for the taping of that conversation other than as a historical marker, a father who knew what he, uh, was going to be ahead for his son, uh, even then. That's right. That's right. I totally agree. Well, I've got uh, two more short things for you, Art, if you're interested. Okay, if they are short. These are real short, uh, about 52 seconds and then 44 seconds. Go. So probably we should wrap it up. Go. Good. Uh, one is uh, Major Edwin Easley having a conversation with Kevin Randall. I had permission to put this on the air. Now, Easley was the provost marshal. He's the top cop of the 509th Bomb Group. Yes, sir. Kevin Randall called him and asked him about uh, this situation, and you're going to hear Easley say he was sworn to secrecy. I cannot talk about it. All right, go ahead. And I understand you were the provost marshal at one time. That's right. At the, at the 509th. Yes. During, during July of 1947? Yes. Pardon me? Yes. Yes. Uh, you're aware of the incident that took place there in July of 47, the uh, alleged crash of a flying saucer? I heard about it. Um, did you, do you have any first-hand knowledge of it? Do what? Do you have any first-hand knowledge of the incident? I can't talk about it. 
then you do have some first-hand knowledge. I can't talk about it. Can you tell me if you were at the crash site? I can't talk about it. I'm Yes, sir, I understand. I'm not going to talk about it. Well, let me... <laughs> so you heard it, Art. You said, I've been sworn to secrecy. I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. I, I heard it, yes. It. Yes, it was weak, but I heard it. All right, uh, you've got one more very quickly. Got one more, 44 seconds. This is Thomas Dubose, the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force. He's reported to General Ramey, and he was asked about the balloon being a cover story. Yes. And here's what he said. you've done with uh, Kevin Randall. Uh, what do you conclude? You know, Art, I think if you took it to a, a, a court, a criminal court, where you said beyond all reasonable doubt, I don't think you'd get a conviction and say that this thing was really a, a, a craft of extraterrestrial origin. But if you were to look at the preponderance of evidence, means that it was kind of tipped ever so slightly, I think there's a compelling case to say that it very well could have been. But I, I won't be convinced until I actually see a piece of it or see the government announce it, but uh, it's so compelling that I'm still investigating it after all these years. Well, it was certainly good to hear from the principals, and uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, because of their age, they're not going to be around that much longer, uh, those who were actually there. Uh, those like Colonel Corso, who I interviewed, and, um, of course, many are already gone. So, John, I want to thank you for bringing all of this to us this morning. It's kind of an appropriate wrap to the whole Roswell thing uh, for the 50th anniversary. You're very welcome, Mark. Nice to be here. John, thank you, and good night. Uh, that's uh, John Kirby in um, Portland. And there it is, folks, kind of a wrap on Roswell. And you heard from the principals involved. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Somewhere in time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Good morning, everybody. Great to be here. John Kirby has been on for the last two hours, 
Uh, with some audio clips, many never heard before of the principles involved in the whole Roswell business. And uh, from Tim in Lakeville, Minnesota, Art, please have those audio clips made available on your webpage via AudioNet. They were astounding. Please get permission and put them up for all the world to hear. Uh, that's something we can work on, and uh, something my webmaster, Keith, uh, probably can do. Uh, so we'll make that request right now, uh, some of the more dramatic audio clips. Keith, if you can get them up there um, in some sort of format for people to archive, that would be wonderful. And I want to advise everybody of an experiment going on on the website right now. Um, it is probable or likely that Monday we will cover um, the final two hours of the big meeting in Phoenix with Richard Hoagland and company uh, that will occur this Monday. And we plan to try something quite revolutionary. In addition to getting audio, if it works, this is all a big if. Uh, if it works and the audio is good, we'll be uh, in a sort of a two-way conversation with those down in Phoenix on Monday, uh, Richard Hoagland and company, and it's going to be quite an event, and um, it, it uh, is also going to be an event on the Internet in the sense that uh, we are going to have a camera uh, at the event, and we are going to do a split screen. If you've ever been up and seen the studio cam that I've got there now, you can actually see me doing the program, the show. Uh, we're, instead of just having one photograph up there that cycles through, uh, we're going to have two. And uh, one of them is going to be from the event going on in Phoenix, and the other will be of me. And so you will actually not only get to hear both sides, but you'll get to see both sides. And so Keith has experimentally, Keith Rowland, uh, my webmaster, has been experimentally um, putting split screens up, and we've got a split screen up there right now. It's simply experimental, but I would ask everybody to go uh, take a look and see if it looks okay to you. And uh, then coming Monday would be, on the left, would be me with this, ed this side of the broadcast. And then on the other side, you would see Phoenix live and what's going on there as you listen to the entire event on the radio. Now, we're endeavoring to do an awful lot of technological stuff here at once, and there's no guarantee it's going to work. I'll tell you that right off, but we're going to try. And we've got a test up there on the site right now of this split-screen technology. So go take a look and see what you think. <laughs> See if it, if you think it will work out all right. Uh, go to www.artbell.com, and then when you get there, uh, simply go down, scroll down, until you get to Studio Cam, or whatever it is that it says, I believe Studio Cam right now, and click on that and take a look and fax me or email me and let me know what you think. That's what we're going to try to do with the big conference going on down in... Um, Phoenix on Monday. That'll be the first two hours of the program. So let me know what you think. Boy, I'll tell you, always out on the cut edge of everything.
Okay, so you've got Streamlink, our Apple iPhone app, the Daily Coast Zone free email newsletter, but don't forget the After Dark magazine. Every month you can read editorials from me, George Norrie, interviews you don't hear on the air, articles on the Internet, and news stories not covered by the mainstream. Simply subscribe now and cover all of your coast-to-coast AM bases. Call one 261 6392 one or subscribe online at coasttocoastam.com. Now we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Well, I think we are going to do what nobody has ever done before. Going where nobody has ever gone before. Assuming that everything comes together technically, and you know what happens when you assume, Monday night it should be possible for those of you with a computer, for example, to listen on real audio or to your local affiliate on your computer as you see a split screen uh, with live photographs coming from me here in Nevada, in the desert, and from the event going on in Phoenix, Arizona, side-by-side uh, side with the audio streaming from your computer. It will be a first, I do believe. It really should be something. So if you want to take a look, go on up there now and take a look and let me know what you think. We've got an experimental uh, split screen up there right now. I am getting persistent reports of UFO sightings near um, Atlanta. Uh, Mr. Bell, I am an independent UFO researcher living in Atlanta, and I'm contacting you to inform you about the incredible rash of sightings in our state, particularly the city of LaGrange, which is about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. There have been documented instances of landings Low flyby sightings of crafts about 30 feet off the ground and many other such occurrences. I thought you might want to mention this on the air so people in that community would be encouraged to call your show and share some of what's going on with the rest of the nation. Indeed, um, I would very much like to hear from people in that area. Uh, this is about the second or third night that I've been receiving these kinds of reports. What's going on in Georgia? Rolling over some of the rest of the news, Joe Camel is being put out uh, to pasture by the tobacco companies. The most startling news of the day from the CDC. Um, sorrowfully, not surprisingly, the CDC has confirmed the first case of transmission of HIV by kissing. CDC says they've confirmed it. The man's saliva was contaminated because his gums bled after he brushed and flossed his teeth. The CDC says interviews with the couple indicate they always had used latex condoms during intercourse and they had ruled out any other possible path of HIV transmission. So, my, my, my. What was laughed at and scoffed at years ago, now, as usual, turns out to be true. 
Oh, you can't, you can't pass AIDS, not with, not with a kiss. Well, unfortunately, yes, you can. I watched, as I have on a daily basis, the Mars uh, NASA news conference. It was at 12.30 Pacific today, yesterday now. It'll be at 12 o'clock today. CNN covers it every day. And it was pretty interesting. The Pathfinder tangled with a rock and had what they called a first, uh, the first fender bender on Mars. And indeed, uh, the rock yogi uh, sat right there, and our little friend Sojourner uh, came up and just about began to climb it. Uh, it's quite a little, um, quite, quite a little affair they've got going on on Mars. And again. Um, as you well know, I disagree with uh, Richard on this, and I believe we are firmly on Mars, and we'll get to hear from Richard, I'm sure, uh, soon, uh, and we'll see what he concludes about everything that is going on. But it is remarkable. The news conferences are absolutely remarkable. The pictures, increasingly remarkable, and tomorrow we should have a 360-degree panorama in full color. That should be something to see. Tomorrow night, Father Malachi Martin is on. And if you have never heard Malachi, you're going to want to do that. Uh, He's really something. Uh, For now, to the phones. Open lines, unscreened, whatever you want to talk about, fair game. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi, Art. How are you? I'm fine. Turn your radio off, please. Okay, it's off. Hey, I can't believe I'm through to you. Yes, uh, I was wondering if you got my book I sent to you. I sent you a book right around Christmas time from Ohio, uh, Big Footprints by Grover Krantz. I believe so, yes. Uh, what did you think? Did you get a chance to skim through it? Um, I did, and um, and yes, it was very interesting, as a matter of fact. Well, I really enjoyed that book because it was written from like, uh, the scientific point of view. Right. And even from the scientific point of view, he came out in favor of uh, the creature's existence. Right. It was uh, fascinating and well done. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, especially the one passage when he talks about the footprints and that uh, if you believe it's a hoax, you'd almost have to believe in a worldwide conspiracy laying down footprints over the past century. And, uh, you know, like, in other words, who's funding this organization and how they have uh, been able to keep it secret for so long. Yes. And uh, I was wondering if you might possibly be able to get that guy on the radio. Well, uh, I, I'll see what I can do. Uh, it's very difficult trying to get people um, when you don't have contact information. Uh-huh. But yeah, I'll... I'm sorry. I, I, I mean, I, I'm from Ohio, and I work out here in Washington, but I have, I mean, I don't know the guy, so I couldn't give you no information on how to get a hold of uh, Right. Well, listen, I, I heartily appreciate your having sent it. Thank you. And uh, I will do what I can. And, I, and let me take a moment to say this. If you have a suggestion for a guest... Uh, by all means, if you have any way, publishers' names, um, phone numbers, addresses, any way I can get hold of the person that you want to get on the air, it is very helpful. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hi. Yes, Art. Yes. This is uh, Tim and Phoenix. Hi. Uh, the reason I was calling, did I hear you earlier, you said Hoagland didn't believe we were on Mars? That's right. Okay. My theory is this. Uh, if... Okay, if he didn't think we were there, would not, okay, some of the people didn't like us, like Russia or some of these other countries, 
would check to see if our signals weren't coming from Mars, you know, from the location we said we're at, and yes. then come back and say, hey, you're lying, and, you know, just try to make a, you know. I think the, uh, the case is profoundly strong that we are on Mars, period. I do, too. Uh, and I believe that Richard will come to that conclusion himself given time, uh, but I could be wrong. And that'll be, be tomorrow he'll be down here? No, Monday. Monday? Monday. Okay. All okay. right. I'll be listening. Right, Thanks, thank sir. you. Yeah, it'll make it interesting. Um, Richard and I have a schism in this area, uh, but that's okay. I mean, this is what disagreements are about, and it may well be that Richard will rethink it. It may be uh, that he is rethinking it now. I don't know. Or maybe he is going to maintain. Uh, we'll find out. Monday. <laughs> um, East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Oh, all right. Yes. This is Jim in Louisiana. Hi, Jim. Yeah. I, I know you travel a lot, Art. I wanted to ask you a question. Now, I was in Walmart the other day, and they have one of those little things for, like, for seasickness or whatever it is. Yes. It's a little thing that, I don't know, you, you know more about this than me, but something you put on your wrist, like a tight little band. What would that do? Well, it's kind of like a nicotine patch, uh, and it's simply... Um, yeah, but it says drug-free and all that. Yeah, I'm sure it's some sort of natural potion. Um, no, I mean, the way it looked like it put, just put pressure on your, uh, on your... on your Oh. Yeah, it was a pressure thing. It had nothing to do with any kind of... Okay, I don't know. Um, I tell you, the traveling I have done, I, I'm... I get seasick, too, but uh, the cruises that we go on, these are great big traveling cities. Right. And uh, generally, even in fairly rough seas, they have stabilizers, um, and they don't rock and roll. Okay, one other thing. Uh, yeah, I, I think that Malachi Martin, your first interview with him, was the best one I've ever heard. It was just riveting. Very good, yes. Would you ever consider going on an exorcism with him if he asked you? Um. I don't think he would ask me. I wouldn't expect uh, Yeah, I know, him. but just hypothetical. Uh, would I do it? Yes, I would do it, but I would not expect to be asked. It'd be kind of scary, though, wouldn't it? Um, it would be very scary. <laughs> okay, Art, you take care. Would you go? Not a chance. Not a chance, huh? <laughs> all Looking right. Before we turn tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, all we need is a possessed talk show host. I mean, that. It, I, maybe I'll ask Malachi about that. I wonder if... Um, I wonder if people are ever allowed uh, into exorcisms. My guess would be no, that they're probably not. Uh, I would think it would be something they just simply wouldn't do. Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hi. Well, good morning. I'm calling from Anchorage. Anchorage, Alaska. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, this uh, Richard Hoagland, he's talking about this Mars thing being a hoax. Yes, why is it that he never addressed the moon hoax? Or has he? Um, well, it's, no, it, it, he, is a, it, it is a fair question. Uh, has he commented on why the footprints and, and all the tracks and everything are all clearly clearly seen? I mean, they're... they're uh, many times, sir. You have asked him that? Oh, many times. What's his answer for that? Um that the sand uh, is very fine and is displaced by the pressure, and so the tracks remain in the, uh, in the granule. It's very fine granule uh, material. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yes. Okay. Uh, um, has he addressed NASA mooned America? Um, 
Well, I think that Richard Hoagland, in his own way, no, thinks that NASA mooned uh, uh, America. No he, no, he doesn't, because he was talking with Ed Mitchell there, and they were all chumming it up. And, yeah, you're over there, but this is this big old building, this glass building that you can't see, uh, is over here. Well, that's they didn't, what I, they that, didn't talk about those issues. That's what I just said, sir. That uh, in his own way, he thinks that NASA mooned America because while he thinks we did go to the moon, um, he believes that uh, there were things there that were not reported on. Well, I'd like to see him address what was reported on in NASA mooned America. Some of those, not not some of them, but. There's some substantial points there that need to be addressed. Do you believe? Do you, do you believe we did not go to the moon? Uh, after reading that book, I, I'm convinced. Are you convinced that we are now not on Mars? Uh, I, if we didn't go to the moon, probably we're not on Mars. Hmm. Well, uh, you are absolutely entitled to your opinion, and I absolutely disagree with you. I think we did go to the moon, and I think we are on Mars. Period. And that puts me uh, in, a, in a separate camp from a lot of people. But I do not jump to the first conspiracy uh, as the most likely um, explanation. I think that there is substantial evidence that we went to the moon, and uh, certainly is substantial evidence that we are presently on Mars. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, good morning, dear Art. Good morning. Fritz from Phoenix. Hi, Fritz. What a week. First we had the Mars landing, then we had uh, Roswell celebration, and you had Phil Corso on Sunday night. It made my week. Well, that's, well, that was really something, huh? I mean, that was just falling into place, and it's going to stay in the mainstream. Now, I had a, uh, a quick, uh, briefly uh, conversation with William Burns, and I asked him what are the chances to have this book made in a television special, and his reply was, 100%, this will be a motion picture. Really? Phil Corsa will have a motion picture, and let me tell you, those guys in the Pentagon must be scrambling right now because there's more stuff coming out than you, can, you and I can imagine. But the only thing that concerns me, Fritz, is that when they do a movie, um, they take dramatic license too frequently. Oh, yes, we're going to see the crash and all this, but we realize it's going to be world release. It's going to turn on millions of people. Oh, yes. It's going to be, yes, Hollywood will make a movie, but uh, it's exposure. That's what the name of the game is, get the people to, in the knowing. And by uh, Bill Burns saying, William Burns saying that this will come out in a motion picture, I mean, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, it's going to be a good movie. And like I say, had I been next uh, to uh, uh, Colonel Corso, I would have hugged the guy. I mean, he's 82 years old, and he's coming clean. And I hope there are going to be more guys like him coming out. I am going to uh, try to get that program repeated uh, in a different time slot. Oh, yeah, it has to be a must, because it's a classic. It is a classic. I agree. Thank you, Fritz. Take care. Take care. Um, and I may not be successful. So what I would advise my audience is uh, it was an historic broadcast on Sunday, uh, this last Sunday, truly historic, and you should get a copy of it, and you can do so, and I'm, I mean really historic, this is a, a program everybody should have a copy of, uh, you can get it by calling 1-800-917-4278, and you want to request the Dreamland interview with Colonel Philip Corso.
this past Sunday. The number again is 1-800-917-4278. And by the way, for those of you who would like a copy of The Quickening, um, I've got... That isn't what I want to use for bumper music. What happened there? Um... I've got, uh, uh, there are a few copies available if you would like to uh, jump and get one. You will not get an autographed edition, but soon uh, your ability to get the book at all is going to be gone for a while because it's going to go into uh, general release uh, in late August or early September. I'm Art Bell. We're going to pause here at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Radio Networks presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired July 10th, 1997. When was the last time a cop pulled you over? I'm still trying to get out of the habit, uh, inevitably, after I get a ticket. I always thank the cop, and I'm always kicking myself for it afterward. You know, why did I thank him? I mean, you have a little conversation, he hands you a ticket, which is going to cost you money, and... Like a fool, you say, thank you. <laughs> and he says, thank you, have a nice day. You know, and it's all, I don't know. Here's a little list of a few things never to say when you get pulled over. No, you assume the position, piggy. I'm surprised you stopped me. Dunkin' Donuts has a three-for-one special. No, I don't know how fast I was going. The little needle stops at 110. I know I was weaving, but I was trying to hit all the little green men. Or the number one thing never to say, back off, Barney, I've got a piece. <laughs> Believe me, never, never say that. Streamlink, the audio subscription service of Coast to Coast AM, has a new name. 
Coast Insider, you'll still get all the same great features for the same low price. The package includes podcasting, which automatically downloads shows for you, and the iPhone app. You'll also get our amazing download library of three full years of shows. That's over a thousand shows for you to collect and enjoy. If you're a fan of Coast, you won't want to be without Coast Insider. Visit coasttocoastam.com to sign up. You never know what you'll hear on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. We've got Robert in Houston. There's this lady that I've seen about four or five times in my lifetime. She's tall and skinny. She had on some tight blue jeans, some Indian moccasins. She had on a rainbow-striped poncho and a little flop hat. I saw this woman when I was about eight or nine. I saw her again. I was living in Dallas, Texas. I was on the bus and she was standing outside. Did she look like she aged? No. And here's the crazy thing. About five years ago, me and two of my brothers, we all went on a cruise to St. Thomas down in the very Oh, no, don't tell me. We got on one of these little jitney buses, and my brother, he said, see that lady over there? So we saw that lady in Jacksonville. Last November, my brother died. He had surgery. He had woke up. He was getting ready to eat his breakfast and everything. And he said, oh. He said, I got to get off the phone. He said, I got company. He said, you know the lady we saw down in in St. Thomas? He said, she's sitting over there in the chair. He said, let me talk to her. I'll call you back. Fifteen minutes later, my niece called back. He was dead. He's dead. She was deaf. Great story. Now we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997. On Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Yes, the one thing that really has always bothered me the most about my own reaction to a ticket is that I inevitably, inevitably, I say thank you. And then as I'm driving away, I I think to myself, why the hell did I say thank you? What's the matter with me? And it just, it comes out. Thank you. Uh, Some sort of, um, something from my childhood uh, when I was taught to be very polite with a police officer. And it just comes out. And until later, when I thrash myself mentally for it, uh, for thanking somebody for giving me a ticket. You know, I once got a ticket um, for doing... At the time, the speed limit was 60 miles an hour. And this police car was doing 60 miles an hour, right on the nose. And I passed the guy doing 62 miles an hour. And I thought, no way is he going to give me a ticket for two miles over the speed limit. I look back, flashing red lights, siren, I pull over. And he said, you know, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever seen. He said, you never pass a police officer who's doing the speed limit. I said, officer, I was doing 62 miles an hour. He said, you never pass a police officer doing the speed limit. He was incensed that I had just barely crawled by him. I don't know. Back off, Barney. I've got a piece. <laughs> West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Okay. This is Gary. Yes, Gary, where are you? I'm in Phoenix. Phoenix! Yes, sir. Ground zero. Ground zero. <laughs> Two things, real quick. Yes, sir. One, last week, I believe it was, you were talking about a young man who gave birth to his own twin and was wondering if it was true. I believe so, yes. Um, the story was accurate. Um, the twin apparently survived uh, inside him. Uh, he, he didn't exactly give birth to it. Um, that part is not accurate. Uh, 
Ah. Uh, there was an operation. I mean, there's no way that a man is going to give birth. Right. Come on, let's think about that. But um, it is possible, apparently, for a fetus, his twin in this case, to have survived internally. Yes, same thing happened to my mother. It's very rare, but it does happen. She was, I believe, 37 years old when she had stomach problems. They couldn't figure out what it was. They went in and found what appeared to be... Her twin? Her twin. Weird stuff. The other thing I had a question about, and I've never heard it answered, and I've always wondered, Neil Armstrong was supposed to be the first man to step on the moon. Right. But yet in this footage they show of him coming off the ladder, the camera's at least 15 feet away, filming... The spacecraft is he's walking off of it and taking right. his giant leap. Right. Who was filming? I believe that they had some sort of robotic something that did land to be able to take that photograph. I'm not really, I'm not really sure. It's a very good question, actually. But I, I, I think they had, there was a camera I know that was left on the moon. And I oh, think, okay. I th- believe that it was that camera, and I believe they did it so they could get that historic footage. Well, it's, not like somebody, it's not like somebody ran out and set up a camera, and then they came down. Well, it's always, uh, always bothered me. I always wondered, because they always said he was the first to step on the moon, yet I always saw this, someone had to be operating it, and I never thought about a robot, robotic before. It is a very good point, uh, but I believe that is the answer. Thank you. And then... And then that, that camera, I believe, was left on the moon and actually continued to operate for some time after they left the moon. And that would be my off-the-cuff answer, that it was some sort of robotic uh, device. I, I, I think that's right. Uh, East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, this is uh, Charles from Maine. Hi, Charles. Where, where in Maine are you? Uh, Dexter. Dexter, Maine, all right. Right. You ever heard of Dexter Shoes? I have, yes. Yeah, we make them here. Okay. Okay, um, I had a suggestion for our guest. Okay. I was wondering if you've ever heard of Bob Larson. It's a vaguely familiar name. Who is he? Okay, he's, um, I, I noticed he was going to have Malachi Martin on tomorrow. Oh, yes. And this guy, that's, that's kind of the Catholic point of view. And this guy, you know, would give the Protestant point of view on, like, the demon thing. Oh, okay. And um, he's the host of a radio show, you know, like yourself. And he's been on shows like the Oprah Winfrey Show, the Phil Donahue Show, Montel, Sally Jesse, Larry King. And um, he he's the author of quite a few books from Thomas Nelson Publishers in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And he had, he, like, a couple of stories in this book that he mentions, like, He's had demons uh, duplicate his physical appearance. He could tell that story, I guess, and um, duplicate his voice over the phone. I tend not to have people on who have their own programs because they don't really need to be on my program. They have their own. I don't. I don't know how widespread. You know, I'm sure you you hit a lot more of an. I think you have what 18 million listeners. Uh, no, more like about 10, 12, somewhere in there. Yeah, so, I mean, it would be such a wider audience, and he has done, you know, Larry King, and he will, I guess, do other shows, but I think it would be cool. All right. I'll consider it. Okay. All right. Oh, I want one more thing. Sure. Um, Do you know, is FM radio ever broadcast in monorail as opposed to stereo? Yes, it is. Um, Because the only station on my dial here uh, that comes, 
it's FM, but it's it's it doesn't come in stereo. Is the one you know it's 103.9 WVOM here in Maine, and I guess it's mono. You know. Well, and, uh, is it uh, talk? Uh, yeah, it's all talk. Okay, well there you are. Um, that's the answer. You've answered your own question. Um, I've frequently thought, why would you have? Uh, what would be the reason to have stereo on an on a talk station and increasingly talk as popular as it is is beginning to cross over remember that old term crossing over talk is crossing to fm and uh, for example wwtn in nashville jack landreth is a good friend uh, who's the program director there uh, is proving that fm talk is incredibly viable and, of course, they're clobbering the competition in Nashville. And um, so it is beginning to spread across America, and talk is crossing over to FM, where it is very successful. But why have stereo? Why? I suppose the commercials could be in stereo. Then I thought, well, you know, we could transmit in stereo. That wouldn't be a big deal. We could do it. And you could, put, you know, put the caller on the right, and the talk host on the left, or if the political leanings were the other way, you could switch them. Uh, you could kind of play around with it and have some fun. We could broadcast in stereo. I should really talk to my network about that. I wonder if the FM stations out there that carry talk would be interested in receiving stereo talk. <laughs> East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, good morning. Right, one real quick about that caller from Maine. Most of Bob Larson's phone calls are fakes, from what I understand. I've heard this program for a long time. He, he broadcasts out of Colorado, and he talks a lot about demons and things, and most of his calls, from what I understand, are fakes. Well, I've never heard that. How do you know that? That's, that's, what I, that's a rumor that I have heard, and I've heard his program also. Well, people I'm, think my calls are fakes, too. Oh, I know, but I've, um, I understand. Um, now that's, now that's not true because nobody screamed my call when you picked up the phone just now. That's right. So, um, I but but that doesn't stop people from thinking that callers are planted um, and all the rest of it. I get that accusation all the time. Yeah, I, I know. So I, I guess I shouldn't have uh, quite come out and said that. But I, just, I did want to give my opinion. So I'm, I'm going to tell my opinion. So that was said, okay? Okay. Yep, good night. Uh, see you later. Good night. Um, people think that I am a government agent, CIA informant, paid uh, agent. Uh, they think I'm part of the Trilateral Commission. They think uh, everything. Everybody, uh, and so I've just, I've given up. Long time ago, I gave up on trying to dissuade people uh, that I am uh, not part of the government, not part of whatever current conspiracy they think is going on. And so instead of uh, denying it, because you never get anywhere denying it. In fact, and more people end up then being suspicious. I just admit it. Trilateral? Yeah, you bet. Every meeting. Wouldn't miss one. CIA? Heck yeah. I'm inside. And that stops them. You know, when they call up and they say, well, well we've heard you're CIA. Somewhere here I've got a long article that accuses me of being part of uh, some great conspiracy. I'll, I'll have to dig it out and read it to you. It's a riot. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. 
Uh, good morning, Art. How are you doing? I'm fine. Uh, this is Jeff. I'm calling from Boulder, actually. Boulder, Colorado. Exactly. I'm listening to uh, K-How out of Denver. Yes, sir. I was curious about uh, how much of uh, Jacques Vallée you had read and uh, what your thoughts were on some of his writings. Um, well, what is it you want to know? I've, well, I've read some, um, of course, and I. Uh, so what would you like to know? Well, I've read some of the stuff myself, and uh, actually, you know, I, let's see, what did I read? Uh, Revelations, Confrontations, and some of the other stuff. I was just kind of intrigued by his writing because, <coughs> excuse me, basically he takes the he takes the the stand that uh, um, that you know unidentified flying objects are real phenomena, um, but he he pretty much rides the fence, or in his words, uh, takes an unbiased uh, opinion about what exactly uh, those phenomena are, and and he kind of makes the case for not jumping to jumping to conclusions and saying so much that uh, you know, UFOs are necessarily extraterrestrial as in other, from other planets or another part of the solar system. Yeah, I don't know that to be true either. Um, and I, I'm very careful about that. I, uh, we, UFOs are real, case closed. Uh, we have UFOs, but I don't know what they are. Well, it's interesting, you know, because he makes... Uh, Every once in a while, he lets slip out certain things, like uh, and, and some of these things I've heard on your show before, as far as uh, he calls uh, perhaps the beings uh, fractal beings, you know, along the lines of uh, quantum physics and and such and so forth. Um, the only thing that really disturbs me about his writing is, uh, especially in the book Revelations, uh, the case he makes, what, what he states basically is that a lot of what passes in the popular culture for uh, the UFO phenomenon, some of, the, some of the interpretation of that is basically uh, government misinformation. But then the next step that he makes, uh, you know, it's, it's like he's building this whole case uh, you know, all the basically it's conspiracy that the government is perpetuating, but then the reasons for the perpetuation really don't stand up. Like military flying platforms, well, whether they do or do not exist, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't see the government going to such great lengths to just cover up basic military secrets. Um, perhaps that's true. You know, perhaps Area 51 is nothing but uh, you know advanced military technology, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was some amazingly incredible stuff, uh, both electronically and otherwise, stuff right. that that you know the uh, the American public has no idea uh, about. You know, something which wouldn't come on the commercial market for say 15 or 20 years. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling, but I, I think it's very interesting that uh, the point he makes that. I, I I think there is some government misinformation going on, certainly with, uh, as you've covered on your show, uh, you know, that, that farce of a press conference that the Air Force put on, yeah. for instance, and, and uh, other things. But All right, sir. Well, I, I appreciate the call, and I agree with you and Mr. Valade to that extent. Um, there's obviously something going on, and um, people will frequently ask me in interviews, are you a believer? Well, in what? I'm a believer in UFOs. I've seen them. And so have most Americans. And I can safely say that. The majority of Americans have seen UFOs. Does that mean they are spacecraft from elsewhere? No. Am I a believer in the sense of it being almost a religion with me? Being a believer means you're making a leap in faith. 
In other words, you are believing in something that you cannot prove tangibly. And that is not me. I guess I am interested. I am an investigator. I am intrigued. But I am not a believer. And there is a big difference because there is almost a cult of ufology of people who are uh, desperately um, obsessed with the fact that uh, they are here from elsewhere. I do not know that to be true. And so I don't believe. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning. Okay, one of the, one of the things I, I had was uh, today it was occurring to me thinking about telephone communication. This is kind of a weird contradiction. I, you know, I looked it up in a physics book. I couldn't really find a, an answer to it. You and I right now are discussing something, and our voice is producing sound. Yes. And that is the speed of sound, correct? Um, roughly, yes. Okay. Well, but if, if I were to uh, get in a rocket ship and fly the speed of sound from, from Blue Springs, Missouri, to where you're at in Las Vegas... Oh, well, near it, yes. Yeah, I couldn't do it instantaneously. So which is the speed of sound? Um, well, no, no. Your, um, your voice electronically uh, is being um, transmitted at the, near the speed of light, sir. Uh, if you're talking about electronic transmission, if you're standing across the room from me, talking to me, then that audio is arriving from your lips to my ear at the speed of sound. But um, in our discussion now, uh, over phone lines or through satellite relay, is occurring near the speed of light. Okay. Do you understand the difference? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, because it's instantaneous. But, um, I mean, well, a lot of this is done, I mean, not through satellites sometimes. It's done through just copper wiring, isn't it? Oh, correct. Okay, so. Uh, but that is not being transmitted at the speed of sound, sir. That's being transmitted uh, at near the speed of light. Okay. I, I, I just never had that explained before. I was talking to someone who, who uh, attends DeVry, and, I mean, I, I know that obviously... Um, Sound transmits through the air or the atmosphere at what we know or, or call the speed of sound. Okay. But through wires or electronically, uh, it moves at near the speed of uh, light. Okay. Does that I, help you? Well, yeah, I, I just had that question. And you know the, you know the other question I had, too, is that uh, when it comes to being on the air, how, how long have you been on the air, and what did it take to, for you to get to the point where you're national? Oh, that's a, that's a hard question. I'll, I'll tell you what, we're coming up in the hour. You listen after the top of the hour, and we'll talk about that, all right? Okay. Okay, coming up right after Z-News. Be right back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. This young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot. And the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret because I'm the best. Oh, I'm 
Dale tu fuego para alegría, Macarena, que tu cuerpo para dar la alegría y cosas buenas. Dale tu fuego para alegría, Macarena. ¡Eh, Macarena! Dale tu fuego para alegría, Macarena, que tu cuerpo para dar la alegría y cosas buenas. Dale tu fuego para alegría, Macarena. ¡Eh, Macarena! Premier Radio Networks presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired July 10th, 1997. We're into uh, open lines. Anything you want to talk about is absolutely fair game. Now we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997 on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. The CDC, as you must have heard by now, has documented the first case of HIV transmission by a kiss. Actually, by extended, passionate kissing. Uh, so, um, you know, several years ago, uh, they said impossible. Simply impossible. Now, in 1997, suddenly it is possible. Surprised? Not me. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Mr. Bell, can you hear me? I hear you. Yeah, this is uh, RTJ from uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Yes, sir. Sir, I'd just like to confirm a report that a man called you up either last night or the night before saying that Richard Hoagland was on another TV show. Well, another radio program, I yes, believe. Yes, it was the Gil Gross show, and he did confirm that uh, the lander was on Mars, and he... Well, the only problem with that is that I talked to Richard after that show. Yes, sir. And um, he's, he confirmed to me that he still believes it's a hoax. I can't believe he said that to you. Well, he did. Well, on news he said he was uh, PO'd and that he was mad because it was on Mars. But no, he said, it was on Mars. he said if. I asked him about that, um, uh, as you might imagine, uh, when I talked to him. And he said if it's there, then he's PO'd. He might have said that to you. That's not what he said on the radio program. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just telling you what he told me. I didn't hear the show, um, so I'm telling you what he told me. Sir, have a great day. I love your show. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Uh, we will uh, hear more about this Monday. Uh, it is a great mystery to me why he believes as he does, but that should be part of the interesting aspect of what we're going to do on Monday, I think. Uh, he will have time uh, from now through the weekend to digest uh, all of the information that's been coming, you know, all week long from uh, NASA. And I'm sure we'll hear a definitive statement on Monday from Richard. And you can bet your bottom dollar there will be a lot of questions about exactly that. So we'll see. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Art. This is Daniel in Portland. Yes. Hi. Um... Yeah, I just want to say about Richard Hoagland, uh, I, I take great interest in what he speaks of, except uh, 
I think he really is in denial about this, but I don't think he's wrong totally because uh, I think that if he puts his energy instead of you know denying uh, the, the facts that it is on Mars and put put its use that maybe there's something behind the scenes that he he, he hasn't seen yet, um, you know, to the pattern that he always talks about. Maybe there's something that's uh, continually going on, you know. Well, I could have accepted many answers from Richard. Um, and in a continuing credible way. In other words, he could have said, and it may, might even be true, that the publicity that uh, we generated caused NASA to rethink what they might have otherwise done, and so they landed on the 4th. I could have accepted that. Or I could have accepted um, um, a whole lot of different uh, scenarios other than it's just untrue. It's The whole thing is fake. Um, that is the one I cannot accept. But the thing is, uh, he's, you know how he's always talking about uh, tetrahedral, uh, you know, this and that. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is that it did land on 19.5, you know, tetrahedral, and, you know, all the uh, aspects of the spaceship itself. I mean, um, so right there, I mean, that says something, you know. But um, it may be a slightly different uh, scenario than, what, you know, his um, scenario that he told you on the air. That's what I figure anyways. Well, we'll find out. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's where they came down, I believe, at 19.5. That's correct. And I found it interesting that Richard was not fascinated by, nor intrigued by the fact that they were coming down at 19.5, uh, because that would have fit in with so much of what he was saying. I could have accepted a lot of answers from Richard other than the one that, that he gave, and still maintains. Now... I, I just learned he was on Gil Gross. I didn't know it was Gil Gross. I've never heard uh, Gil Gross. We don't get him out here. Um, but I did have an opportunity to speak to Richard the day following, after the caller had made the comment, and I asked him about that. And he steadfastly maintained uh, that he still thinks it's a fake, a fraud, and that he did say that if they had landed, uh, he would be very angry about that. P.O.'d, to be specific. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Art. Hello. I've, I've got a problem. Okay. I have gone to uh, at least 50 places to get credit. I have a bankruptcy on my credit. Uh-huh. No one will give us credit nowhere. Right. That's because you uh, filed for bankruptcy. But that why? I feel like, you know, if you don't have the, if you've got the mark of the beast, you can't do nothing. Well, um... Is that the mark of the beast? Uh, how long ago did you file for bankruptcy? Uh, 92. We were cleared. It was a Chapter 13. We paid everything off. That, that well, I think it takes about seven years for that to be uh, expunged, generally, from your record, right? Yeah, but I just, I just don't... I was... You know, I, I feel like that... Uh, well, listen... What do you do in the meantime? It's seven in the years. Mean, in the meantime, uh, you... Uh, essentially suffer for your action. Um, in other words, um, you were given an opportunity to clear all your debt. Chapter yeah. 13. Yeah, but we did clear our major ones. We have the titles to everything. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, so you're paying for what you did. Essentially. Essentially. And no one will give us a break, huh? Um, why would you expect them to? Well... I just thought maybe they might. I don't know. I th Why? 
Why? Yes. Because he's working, and and we have a, a eighty-five truck, and our our television burned up yesterday, and we need a TV real bad, and and we can't get credit nowhere. Well, we can't even get a master. Uh, we can't even get a secured Mastercard. Well, um, oh, a secured one. A, no, we can't get a secured one. Why not? They won't touch us. Um, well, now that I don't understand. A, a secured card means that you put up the money. Right. We can't even get a, get one. Mm. Well, very thoroughly, and I'm waiting. And I thought, well, if we're going to get a television, I was going to try to get a computer. You know, to get in the computer thing. Yes. I wanted to get into the upcoming telecommunications thing. Yes. I can't even do that. Well, um... I'm thoroughly disgusted, Art. Uh-huh. Well, I appreciate your call, but I, I'm afraid that I can't offer you very much sympathy. I understand um, the nature of bankruptcy. Um, I don't... There are too many bankruptcies in America today. And um, frankly, I've got to be honest with you, ma'am. It doesn't sound to me like you've learned your lesson. Uh, you're dying to get out and get credit to buy a TV. Not exactly a life necessity. Or a computer. Not exactly a life necessity. And it sounds to me as if you had credit, you'd go out and get in trouble again. Bankruptcy is designed to give a person a second chance. And that doesn't mean to go out and rack up uh, bills that you cannot pay and file another bankruptcy in seven years. So, I'm sorry. I appreciate your call, but I don't have a lot of sympathy for what you want. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi, Art. Hello. Um, calling in regards to, uh, well mainly about harp but uh the uh those bands that one of your callers was talking about they work with acupressure right and um the few articles that i've read about harp um it's if you go to i don't know if it's actually the um what university it was but um, um anyhow it's a joint university and uh us military project Mm. Where they're actually, they state in their the release that it's for um, uh, communication purposes with uh, submarines. Yes. But uh, do you believe that? The dark side of it is the the fact that they a lot of people believe that uh, it can actually be used. Uh, well, it, what they do is they heat up parts of the ionosphere. They're going to actually heat it and blow a hole in it. That's that's one of the uh, the theories that that possibly could happen. Well, they're going to try to do that. Yeah, well, that's how it works. But the, the theory with punching a hole through it hasn't actually uh, been been proven, but it's all based on Nikola Tesla's um, um, work. But the, the main, the scariest part is the fact that they believe that certain um, frequencies can actually be used in, in warfare in order to... Uh, that's correct. To, um, affect troops. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So that's basically it. All right, sir. Thank, thank you, you very much. Uh, Dr. Nick Bigage has been on my program many times uh, in the past discussing HARP, and I suppose it's about time we got an update. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hi. 
Good morning, Art. This is Randy from Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. Yes, sir. Yes, I was very intrigued with uh, your interview with Stan Tennant the other night. Oh, that was really something. Oh, yes, it was. And uh, what I wanted to say is um, uh, I've studied some Buddhism and noticed that some of the scholars in Japan had done much of the same thing with the Lotus Sutra. And what they derived from it was some characters that they put into a mandala and used with a chant called Namyo Horenge Kyo, the title of the Lotus Sutra. Oh, that's Nishiren Shoshu Soka Gakkai, sir, from Japan. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm sir. very familiar with it. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I noticed, I just noticed a similarity with that. I was born and raised Catholic, so I am looking forward to seeing, uh, uh, listening to uh, your guest tomorrow night. Father Martin. Uh, yes. He is. I, I've heard your interviews with him. They're very, very fascinating. Well, there you are. Well, thank you very much, Art, and have right. a good night. Now. Take care. I'm going to try as much as possible uh, to have a, a sort of a night of the audience with Father Malachi tomorrow night. Uh, Father Martin, actually. And in the past, uh, we, well, actually, we have had uh, quite a bit of open lines, but I'm going to try and do a little bit more of it tomorrow night. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Art. Good morning. I got one question for you about the show you had on the pyramids way back. Was that room in the Great Pyramid that they were that they were secretly digging in? Um, the Great Pyramid, yes, uh, from the uh, uh, Kings to Queens Chamber. Okay, because I saw a thing today, and I think it was the other one they sent the robot up to. The other thing was a little piece of information I just found out about Arizona. Having to do with the Grand Canyon, I was wondering if you've heard of a guy named David Hatcher Childress. No. He wrote a bunch of books, Lost Cities of North America, this this and that, a bunch of lost cities. Well, this one, 1909, April 5th, the Arizona Gazette. This guy named Tim Cade coming down the Colorado saw some strange cave. Yes. Goes up there. Goes down in, discovers a bunch of artifacts that he thought was Chinese. Right. Sent them to the Smithsonian. Nothing was ever said to me much about it. But if you look, I suppose on microfiche you can get a copy of this up on the website. It's really interesting. I can read the whole thing, but it'd take me probably 20 minutes. All right. Um, thank you very much for the information. Of course, I am familiar with the monster in the Grand Canyon. Everybody knows about that. First time caller line, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Art. Scott from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yes, sir. First time I ever tried to call. Well, here you are. i got about five topics I want to run by real quick. All right. First of all, Richard Hoagland. Yes. Um, okay, so he looks bad right now. Um, I'm going to wait till after the 20th and see what really happens, and, and I don't see him rethinking anything. I see him coming up with new and different data points and eventually coming to a conclusion. So I'm not going to come out here and say he's wrong and, and get on his case the way, you know, certain people have recently. So that's that's all on him. Secondly, electric cars. I think you're all wet on that idea. Really? Yes. Uh, I work kind of in the battery industry. And to me, the big problems are charging them, first of all, is going to take current from somewhere. I, I acknowledge that, I think. I think uh, if everybody had an electric car tomorrow, the power grid would crumble in moments. Well, uh, I... If you if you were listening to what I said, I said um, concurrent with that, you would have to be developing new sources of cleaner energy 
uh, with which to charge those cars, or you would gain nothing because you've got to use coal or oil to generate the electricity. Right. Um, to me, the... the well, what do you mean, right? Uh, that, that, that's really an important fact. Don't just say right and gloss over it. No. Uh, develop solar energy. Uh, develop more um, um, energy uh, with, with water. Uh, with um, even wave energy, all different kinds of cleaner energy, and then electric cars, and then you have really accomplished a... Well, my, my problem with the electric car is that uh, batteries are, first of all, they're very inefficient. You've got to put a lot more into them than you get out of them. Um, secondly, uh, the one thing about the internal combustion engines is you can pull it to your gas station and recharge in five minutes and drive for six hours. You're never going to be able to do that with a battery. It just it takes too long uh, to charge. Never say never. You're right. I'll never say never. Um, the woman with the bankruptcy. Yes. Um, there's nothing in the world stopping her from buying a computer or a television tomorrow if she saves her money for a little bit. Cash. If she can't save for a few months, then she shouldn't buy it on credit anyway. Yeah, I really have very little sympathy for her. Okay, all right. My last point is uh, somebody can check me on this if I'm wrong. Um, I think directly opposite the Earth from the Great Pyramids, or from Giza and the Pyramids, I believe it's about 800 miles due south of Tahiti in the middle of the Pacific. Really? I don't think there's anything there. And maybe on the bottom of the ocean there is, but I believe it's, uh, somebody can check me on that, but I think it's due south of Tahiti by 800 or 1,000 miles or so in the south Pacific. Fascinating. Um, I'm in the middle of Howard Stern country here, but if I could only listen to one talk show, it would be the Art Bell Show. <laughs> Good night, <laughs> Art. Thank you. Good night. Uh, Howard's all right. Howard's a... Uh, um Howard's all right. And you know what? I actually enjoyed his movie. Uh, and I think that, uh, I wonder how many of you saw it. It was quite good. Really quite good. I, I don't know how much the general audience would enjoy it. But uh, if you were either A, a Howard Stern fan, or B, in broadcasting, I think you would enjoy it. Because it documented the fights he had with NBC in New York. And it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, anyway, so there you are. That's my comment. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes. Is this Art? Yes, I'm the only one here. Okay. I am Nathan from Kansas. Yes, sir. Um, I'm listening on Real Audio. Okay. I have one question. Actually, two. Two, huh? I was watching a program on TV, and are aliens demons, fallen angels from heaven? You're asking me? Mm-hmm. Eats the hell out of me. Because, like, it was the 700 Club, Uh huh. and they were saying how aliens were fallen angels, and they were demons. Demons. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Might be. Um... And about that moon landing? Yes. Um, why weren't the stars moving in the background? Why weren't the stars moving? Well, I'm going to hit you with the same question. Uh, generally, as a matter of fact, you couldn't see the stars. I didn't see them, did you? Well, in, a, in some, not really, far away... Uh, the answer is that the cameras that were being used uh, really didn't pick up starlight. If you doubt that, take your own home camera on a nice, clear, starry night and go point it at the sky. And what you'll generally see on the playback is zero. Okay. All right? And that's what we got, essentially, was zero. 
Um, and have you gotten my emails? And one other thing, if you were going to fake it, mm-hmm. wouldn't you put in stars? Yeah. Yeah. Because I just had to ask that. And did you get my emails? I, I, how would I know that? How can I answer well, that? I don't know, because I can't say my last name. Anyways. Well, then I can't answer your question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. I don't know why I ask it. Anyways. All right. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, yeah, I, how would I answer that question? You're a relatively anonymous person, other than giving me a first name, and I get three to 400 emails a day, Ta-da. and you ask me, did I get your email? I don't know. Had you described the content of your email to me, I might have been able to answer that question. But I use a kind of a system of triage with email, uh, trying to eliminate the spam, which is about a third of every day's daily email, and then trying to decide, uh, based on titles, what is important beyond that. So if it's really urgent, say so in your email title. We'll be right back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Somewhere in time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 10th, 1997. Good morning from the high desert. This is uh, radio as it happens, whatever it is we talk about. From Jim in Oceanside, California. Good morning, Art. First discovered you about three years ago in Honolulu. Got several diverse questions. What is the latest in harp activity? Actually, Jim, I need to find out about that. I don't have an update for you. Is the woodpecker signal still emanating from Russia? There I can answer you. No, it is not. Three, are your guests paid? No, the answer is no. I have never, in all my years of radio, ever paid a guest. And four, do you think it's the nicotine in cigarettes that does the damage, or is it the added chemicals? And to that one, I have no answer. I don't know. And I'm not sure I want to know, he says, as he 
observes his own burning uh, cigarette and observes his nicotine-stained fingers. <laughs> Now, we take you back to the night of July 10th, 1997, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Well, okay, here's a fax from an unsigned person with no fax header. You know, they're usually cowardly like this. Uh, Referring to the lady who had the bankruptcy that I had not very much sympathy for, because she couldn't get a TV or a computer or whatever. Um, hey, Mr. Better Than, play your song for someone else. When the country is based on worthless wages, how can anyone get credit, let alone pay bills? I guess you've never been there in this reality. Well, you know what, Mr. Um, I won't identify myself by facts. You're full of great big wet brown horse poop. I have spent, uh, I've never been there in this reality, huh? Uh, yes, I'm making more money now than I have at any point in my life previously. But I am now 52 years old, and I have been in radio for 30 years. And anybody who's been in radio can tell you uh, that I spent a great deal of my time starving to death, generally losing more money than I made, uh, generally falling behind, generally having credit problems. So you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about. And in all those years, I never declared bankruptcy. I could have, but I didn't. I don't fault the lady for uh, filing Chapter 13. That's her business. But there is a penalty you pay when you do that. And generally, you cannot get credit for about seven years. And that's what I was trying to tell her. But for you to come at me and tell me that I don't know what it's like uh, to make low wages, I'm telling you that you're full of crap. Uh, that I lived a, I've lived a long life now, and uh, the, the great majority of it was spent payday to payday, like just about everybody else in the world. So you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And uh, moreover, uh, sending a fax like this uh, without a header or an ID or a signature at the bottom is the act of an absolute loser, coward uh, kind of person, which is what I assume you are. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Well, good morning, Art. This is Floyd in Houston. Hi, Floyd. How are you doing, sir? I'm just fine. Uh, you know, of course, so we don't get you until 1 o'clock and we lose you at 4, but right. I, I called anyway because I wanted to talk to you. It means to ask you what... Uh, award you won. I see. I have missed that too. Well, um, I was um, awarded the um, sitting here on my wall. It's the uh, best male talk show host of the year. Congratulations, man! You deserve it. <laughs> I am so glad for you. Thank you. Uh, a couple of quick questions for you. Sure. Uh, have you heard any more uh, from this? Your so-called time traveler that was going to call you back in a month. Well, I had one time traveler about an hour ago. Yeah, I heard him. Uh, <laughs> I think he's still a space cadet. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one, no. Um, I expect to hear back from him, though. 
Yeah, you know, he had made some... Uh, Accurate. Yeah, he had... He had uh, read Accurate the predictions. Yeah, I know. They, they came to pass. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm real curious about that. I'm looking forward also to next week hearing Richard Hoagland again. I'm sort of on the fence as to whether I agree with him or you. Uh-huh. And you remember the first time I called you, I told you I was worried about myself because I found myself agreeing with you so much. <laughs> and I still do. <laughs> well, I don't worry about myself so much, but I still I still agree with you just a whole lot. And, man, I am uh, I'm still trying. The whole group of us down here are petitioning KTRH to put your entire program on. Well, that's the way to do it. And uh, they have explained to me that they are... Uh, they've got contracts, and you're wedged in between two segments of Jimbo Hannon, of all people. Oh, yes. And uh, Jimbo really loves my butt, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I gather that from talking to you. Know, I, I don't uh, listen to him that much, so uh, I haven't heard any of his remarks. But uh, I, I, I wish we could get your entire program. Now, you do broadcast five hours a night, is that right? Oh, that's correct, yes. And on Sunday, three hours? That is correct. Okay, yeah, well, uh, we get all of, of uh, the Dreamland, but we don't get all of Well, I said we get all of it. We get it starting at 1 o'clock. I'm on the air 28 hours a week. Well, <laughs> that's, that's enough to keep a body pretty busy. It does that, sir. Listen, I've got to run, but thank you, and uh, good luck with KTRH. I'm still trying, and bless you, man. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Yeah. For some reason, Jim Bohannon really hates me. I don't know why it is, but he really hates me. Uh, he was down at the award ceremony uh, when I received this award, and he wouldn't get anywhere near me. <laughs> he says all kinds of things about me on the air, and that's okay. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Uh, is this our bell? It is, yes. Yeah. I was um, watching the movie today, Men in Black. Oh, how was it? It was really funny. Was it? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, um, yeah, I've heard it's a riot. I'm going to actually have a guest on who wrote a book called Men in Black, but it is serious, not funny. Really? Yeah. Well, when I watched the movie, me and my friends were uh, thinking about it, and we were always, uh, you know, just, uh, we saw on TV, like, when Ronald Reagan was shot, the IRS and all them, Secret Service, they were always wearing black suits, and they had those wires hanging up to their ears. They always do, yeah. Yeah. I was, we were always we were wondering, and we had a discussion today, uh, whether they were the men in black. <laughs> well, uh, maybe so, in the sense that um, I, I think the men in black probably are from some portion of our government. I, I'm not sure exactly how to put that, but... Uh, uh, we, uh, anyway, I'm going to interview somebody seriously on the subject, uh, and we'll see. All right? All right. All right, it'll be coming up. Listen for that. Yes, I am going to interview somebody who wrote a book called Men in Black. Not a comedy, but a serious uh, presentation, I do believe. Uh, Wild Card Line, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. It's Art. Good guess. Say, some time ago, somebody reported... A couple of animals over in India e killing and eating people. Yeah. Yes? Well, anyway, I have a friend in business 
that just came back from India. And so I asked him, I said, is it true? Yeah. He says, yeah, but there's too many people in India. So nobody misses them, huh? I guess so. Uh-huh. Well, um, it's a claim uh, made by countries with a great deal of population. The uh, Chinese, for example, have frequently said that they could withstand losing, what is it, one in four, uh, one in five of their population in a nuclear war without even uh, mis- missing them. Now, I hadn't really heard the story about a couple of people being eaten in India, but I wouldn't surprise me. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. How you doing, Art? Okay. Turn your radio off, please. It is off. There you go. Yeah, I'm a time traveler. From? From way ahead. Well, how far? 36 AS. AF? AS. AS? Yes. After? After start. After start? Yes. Probably talking to you way beyond your knowledge. Probably. After start. What is start? The beginning of new civilization. So we're not even up to that point yet. Oh, no. So actually, then, you're from many thousands of years in our future. Yes, I am. And I just what I'm doing is actually called um, time. It's kind of like time surfing. Time surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, and council has given me permission to do this tonight. Uh, why have our language skills not improved to a greater degree uh, in that many thousands of years? Uh, language has changed a lot over the years. Really? Oh, yeah, we... Well, I mean, if you were to say something in your native tongue, whatever... Which I would not be permitted to do at this time, or I would be immediately disconnected. Really? Really. But I could tell you some interesting things, though. Well, I'm I'm all ears. Uh, The year uh, 2012 is an interesting year, like, uh, going through my time. I see where you guys have great predictions, but uh, it's nothing what you guys think it is. No? Nope. Well, don't don't let it be a cliffhanger. What occurs in 2012? 2012, and this is about all they're going to let me say. All right. Is because I we're going to have to take whatever nugget we can take. So is will be the year when we will acknowledge space aliens. You people will acknowledge space aliens in the year 2012. Well, does that mean they're going to land? Yes. Cool. And the whole world will know it. It ain't going to be all this surprise stuff now. It will be, it will just happen one day, boom. Did they Did they have to teach you to use slang like ain't? Uh, yes. So in I other words, picked, you were, I picked all this up. You were programmed. Oh, no, no, no. I went to school and learned, I've studied ancient time. Learned how to sound 20th century-ish. Correct. <laughs> Plus, in order for me to talk... This is me trying to talk to you would be you trying to talk to a rock. No, it would be more or less if you went back to someone 20 BC or before Christ, as you guys call it. Uh, religion has changed too. You mean we no longer uh, view Christ as the uh, Son of God? And uh, no, he he did. Uh, I can't. They won't let me say. All right. Well, I, look, I don't want you to do anything that would cause the world to suddenly disappear. Oh, no, no, no. You know, a paradox. No, that, that's the problem. You've got to be gotten, very careful about that. This is true. And Council has given me very good permission 
been very good to me and let me speak to you tonight. It has been an honor. So I'd just like to let you know that's what will be happening. All right, thank you. Uh, there you have it, folks. 2012, they land. That's all he's allowed to say. That was really good, the way they, they got him to say ain't and stuff. Very 20th century-ish. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hey, Alex. Hello. Calling from uh, Idaho Falls. It's the Presbyterian here, 590. Yes, sir. And uh, 5,000 watts of attitude day and 1,000 watts of directional a night. Uh-huh. Hey, I know you're interested uh, both in time and reincarnation. I am, yes. And uh, I was thinking about this the other day, and as I just call you and bounce this off you and uh, all your minions out there. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, time's kind of a linear thing. And right. Of course, uh, for example, Native Americans see it as a circle. What would uh, you think about the possibility of people being reincarnated into the past? Um, hmm. That's an interesting proposition. Ever thought of it that way? I mean... Maybe uh, maybe those who have done well get reincarnated into the future. Those who have not done well uh, get reincarnated into the past, kind of like getting held back in school. Or you could look at it another way. Um, <laughs> perhaps uh, somebody's certain karma, whatever it, is, whatever it is, and whatever, say, lessons they need to learn, could maybe only do that in the past. Maybe there's something that they need to go back and... Now, maybe, maybe when you die, you get a choice. Uh, either you go back in time or you go to summer school. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I've never heard anybody um, look at reincarnation in that way, just on the, if, you, if you look in time as, a, as a, just a circle. Well, maybe you could get put any place on the, on the thing, you know? Uh, there actually, though, are people who work in hypnosis that claim that what you're saying is true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, isn't there some people who uh, postulate that you could actually hypnotize somebody and actually get them from a future, from a future standpoint instead of a past? Yes. Because they'd talk about stuff. Yes, yes. So that gives some credence to what you're saying. Hmm. Okay. Well, pretty uh, neat idea. It's it's it gets my mind going all the time. You know what my son said to me earlier today? What's that? He's th- he was thinking about the Big Bang, and he said, Dad, uh, I think that time and space began at exactly the same time. Okay. But did it end at the same time before? Well, I asked him <laughs> what was occurring one second before that time. Uh-huh. And he went into deep thought, and he hasn't said a word to me since. <laughs> yeah. He overloaded his uh, poor little neurons. Yeah, thanks for the call. Uh, that That's right. Uh, I expect him to come back later today with some sort of answer to that. But, uh, you know, he was thinking, and he was thinking about the Big Bang. I've got uh, a program, thanks to Richard Hoagland, called Redshift. Boy, is it good. And uh, it um, it shows the Big Bang. And he was watching that on the computer, and that set him to thinking about the time and the nature of time and space. And uh, he said... I think they both began at the same time, uh, which was a, a good comment to make. But I did. I asked him, "Well, then, what occurred one second before that?" And he didn't. He had not much else to say. Uh, we'll see what he comes up with. First time caller line. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Art. I'm not calling you 
from the future. I'm not a traveler. I'm actually calling you from a place called the present. The present? Yes, the present. Oh. Anyway, uh, I'll get into sight. Could you tell me what station you're on in Chicago? WLS. Oh, beautiful, because I want to call some people tomorrow to make sure they listen to Malachi Martin. Oh, yes. Uh, 890 in Chicago. You got it. Hey, thanks a lot. All right. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air. Hi. Oh, hi, Art. I'm really glad I got through. Me too. Um, that one guy that called in kind of annoyed me a little bit. Which one? No, the one that was sort of making fun of things. And, I mean, he did and he didn't. I mean, I've seen some... Well, I'm not sure who you're talking about yet. No, it doesn't matter. No, I've seen so many strange things. I was just going to relay a little message that, you know, with all these things that are happening, I mean, myself, I see them as not as being what we think they are. It's more icons and symbols and such. Is this Richard Hoagland? Who, me? Yeah. No, no. No? No, no. Okay. Um, but, I, I mean, you know, I haven't heard your show for a couple of weeks. I've been working days. Ah. But um, I guess I was just wanting to say that, you know, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. You know? I mean, uh, I don't know how to explain that any other way than what it is. Either One other thing, sir? What's that, sir? A stitch in time saves nine. Well, you see, I've had experience with time, and it's it's not... I mean, I've heard other people on your show that they seem to expound on it mm -hmm. a little bit. But it's all now. You just don't have the apparatus to properly... You know, we're limited here, so we can't really see it all at once, but it mm -hmm. all happens at once. Mm -hmm. Some people are able to see ahead in the pattern and behind in the pattern. Well, I'm told that time is nature's way of ensuring that not everything occurs at the same moment. Well, something, yeah, exactly, yes. Yes, I would agree, because it's the whole nature of this place. Would be very chaotic. Well, yes and no. I mean, it depends. No, I think mostly yes. I mean, if there was not linear time, everything would be occurring at once, and it's already bad enough in linear time right now. You, you, you would understand, though, when you were young, as well as when you were old, and in the middle, you would understand who you were, where you are, and where you're going. Mm -hmm. You see, well, your life would be more of a circle instead of a chop-chop line. That's a good point. I, I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you. We're woefully out of time. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Going once, going twice. Hello. Yes, hello. Yes, hi, Art. This is Diane from California. Hello, Diane. We have only seconds. Seconds. I just, a couple of things, and really quick, I wanted to tell you on your two experiments that we did yes. with telepathically. Yes. I got a little concerned because it happened in the southwest in Phoenix. I'm in California. You're in Nevada. Yep. Next one was in Vegas. And you may have commented that you're thinking about doing it a third time. I am, yes. I don't know. I think they may come knocking on your door and ask for where's your buffet, you know? <laughs> well, they might. I'm, they might just be there, you know? Look, uh, the odds of Trump being fried twice are really... <laughs> uh, look, the show is over, so you get the honors. Do it. Good night, world. And <laughs> visitors... Also. Yes, visitors also. Good night, all.